0: Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for the Super Nerd Out discussion. I have James Dalma and Matt Smith with me today. It's going to be a very detailed conversation about the future of energy and potentially other things as well. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm gonna go ahead and let Matt Smith introduce himself, then we'll throw it over to James Dalma, and then I'll have James uh, propose the first question, and then this is surely gonna become a very interesting, long conversation about a very nerdy topic. So Matt, go ahead and uh, kick us off and then we'll throw it over to James.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us on Farzad. Uh, so Matt Smith, uh, I work with uh, Bradford Ferguson at Rebellionaire. So uh, what we do is providing a lot of financial services, financial advice for people who are highly concentrated for the most part in Tesla, but uh, really anyone who has a concentrated p- position and wants to have some financial advice outside of the, the realms of kind of the traditional uh, Wall Street uh, stereotypes. Uh, so that's what we're, we're doing. Uh, I do have to Provide a disclaimer that none of this is financial advice. I am a financial advisor, but uh, this is not financial advice. Um, and just quick side note on, on maybe why we're talking about this in the first place. I do have a background in the energy space. Uh, I was managing. Uh, I was an asset manager for wind farms and biomass power plants, um, a fleet of almost a gigawatt by the time that that, that I left. So I uh, spent a lot of time really nerding out in this space, and uh, had a couple of conversations since then with James, and uh, I'm sure we'll get into that. But yeah, James, why don't you go ahead?
2: Uh, I'm a retired engineer with a lot of hobbies. (laughs) I uh, have been following mostly deep learning really close. After I retired, I started investing. Investing turns out to be fun. And uh, before that, I was a serial entrepreneur. I worked in a lot of different sort of tech areas, but I've worked in renewables and I've worked in machine learning and I've worked in uh, all kinds of dorky software and computer oriented businesses and whatnot. And I sort of use this as a lens to look at the business world and, and look for investing opportunities. I mean, as a hobby, it. Um, so I'm, I also am not a financial <laughs> advisor, and none of this should be taken as financial advice. But it, or, anyway, Matt and I wanted to talk about. Um, I, I was hoping to find some places that we would disagree. I thought maybe we would disagree on some aspects of uh how the renewable landscape is going to be unfolding over the next couple of decades. But then offline we talked about it and we don't really disagree on anything.
1: <laughs> maybe maybe a couple of disagreements on like the term or when certain things like that happen. But so hopefully we can at least have a conversation around some of the possibilities of, of ways that it might shake out. Cause I I think Maybe one of the areas we'll get into is, you know, regulatory capture and, you know, the, or, or just the ineptitude of the incumbent. So we can kind of touch on that. And, uh, I think we do have some, some slight differences there. Um, uh, but I just want to give a, a quick shout out to James too. I mean, I spent eight years working in energy and it, for like the first three years, I was like, this is the most insane industry ever. Like it's, it's unlike any other industry it took forever for me, for me to get up to speed. Um, and so like in all my interactions with everybody on Twitter, it was like, took a lot of explanation. And then James would just come in out of nowhere. And like, he's the AI guy that I don't think knows anything about energy. And he just like would have these perfectly eloquent, completely on point, like explanations of like how things were going to shake out. And I was like, you said that better than I could. And with, you know, level of of, uh, candor and uh, eloquence, that was just like really amazing. So for someone who's technically has not spent nearly as much time in this area as I have, like, yeah, you're smart. And, (laughs) but Point is, you're, you're very well credentialed, even though you don't have, uh, you, you worked in the renewable space a little bit, but um, people should think of you as more than just the AI guy, I would say.
2: Okay, thanks. I'm super pleased to have this opportunity to talk to somebody with Matt's background too. It uh, Like people, inside, I get the impression utility space is a really closed space that like a lot of uh, specialties, you know, it's got its own lingo, they have their own worldview and they can get really insular, but the utility space seems even more so. Like it, it's even hard to get access to people, um, you know. It so it, it's great to just have the opportunity to talk to somebody with a background in there. Actually, so there was a thing. Um, uh, that I didn't know about how accounting works in the utility space that Matt explained to me when on on the side a little while back, and I I, I want would would you explain that? Maybe you could explain it to Farzad as a, as kind of a test case because I thought it was interesting and it's great background for why utility incumbents uh, see the world the way they do.
1: Um, yeah, so so there's 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 kind of um, two parts to this. I'll try to lay it out as as thoughtfully as I can. Um, so I think most people think of you know the financial statements of a company is like what is reported to the s e c So you know you look at Tesla's financials and you know they're the gap financials that are you know the generally accepted accounting principles. They have to report them in that particular way. um if you're a little bit more of a finance nerd you you might know that there's actually a second set of financials, which is their you know tax um financials, and so there's some changes there like you can depreciate physical assets a little bit faster. Um, some things are excluded from taxable income under the tax code that maybe aren't under generally accepted accounting principles. So there's like a couple differences between, you know, gap and tax financials. Uh, but for the most part, they're, they they kind of work out and most people know about them. But utilities are in this weird space, at least in the United States. And, and that's really where my where this conversation is going to be focused, because that's what, what I understand. But utilities have a third set of financials. They have um, these financial statements, uh, uh, which are uh, essentially there's a template imposed by FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And so they have to report their you know, utility financials in there too. And so it's it's a really detailed kind of accounting of their physical assets in particular. Um, and the reason this is so important is because um, you, energy, well, regulated utilities are unlike pretty much every other company, in that you know, most companies they sell a product, you know, they, they try to control their costs, and if there's anything left over at the bottom line, that's their net income. So that's like the income statement, you know, revenue minus cost is, is earnings. Um, utilities start from a completely different space. They, they toss the income statement out and we say, we'll get back to that later. And they start with uh, their, their balance sheet. So they say the net property plants and equipment um, on this, you know, FERC like utility um, financial statement. Um, so let, you know, th- the way that they actually do this is let's say they've got, billion of of net property plant and equipment on there. The the regulator will say, Okay, well, half of that is uh, funded by equity. So 5 billion, and then we're going to allow you to earn a 10% return on that equity. So, you know, (laughs) $500 million net income, they say, Okay, great, we've got our answer on how much net income we can have, Then they they flip that down, put that in the bottom of the income statement. And then they add back their cost. So they add back their tax, they add back their depreciation, they add back all their, you know, salaries and overhead um, and all their uh, fuel mix, all the cost of goods sold. And then they say, okay, here's our projected top line revenue for next year. And then they take that amount of revenue and they divide that by uh, their projected, you know, electricity or natural gas sales, whatever it is. And they say, okay, that's how much we need to charge our customers in order to get our, uh, our earnings that that you said we could have for having so many assets on our balance sheet it's just totally wild, and like no other business really works that way and when you think about what that incentivizes like they don 't really care so much about controlling costs because their costs are all passed through, so you know it does encourage a little bit of excess because you know it doesn't hurt you anything to pay pay your people a little bit more to you know spend a little bit more on some you know nicer stuff, but what it really strongly encourages. Is increasing that that rate base that net property plant and equipment so if you can increase the amount of physical assets you have out there in the field then you can earn an extra 10 percent on the equity portion of that and so that's like the most important thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about the incentives of the utilities is they want to do everything possible to to grow that physical assets out in the field because when they do that that's how they can grow their grow their earnings um so that's a, a quick overview
0: let me see if I get that. Let me try to put in the simplest terms possible that hopefully I understood properly. So this uh, body, is it? Is it a government body that dictates how much the, the utility can
1: make? Well, so um, the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission kind of came up with this standard um, for, for how it's, it's reported, but then the state utility commissions, for the most part, the public utility commissions uh, are the ones who actually go in and, and say, okay, yes, we approve the fact that you put this much in your, in your rate base and, and you, we approve, you know, this level of expenses to support it.
0: Got it. So then, so then this body is basically looking at how much you have and they're like, based on how much you, you own from like a thing perspective, like your plants and your equipment and whatever else they're like, you're allowed to make this much money on those things. And so if you want to make more money, you have to buy more things. Is that a fair way of simplifying what you just said?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't matter how efficient it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what types of things you buy, you know, like they'll give you some scrutiny. Like if it's a total, you know, boondoggle, then you might get a little pushback. But if you look at what's happened in, in Georgia, I don't know how many people are familiar with this, but they, uh, there's this, uh, vocal, uh, nuclear power plant that they were building. Um, 2008, I believe, I'm, I'm going to get some of these numbers wrong. So they're maybe directionally accurate, but but not completely accurate. I think they were projecting to to do this this new nuclear reactor for like $1.8 billion. And they're like, oh, it'll be this great thing. Um, well, it turns out, you know, developing new nuclear is incredibly hard. And so it ended up being like well over a decade delayed and the costs more than 10x in that time. So like a $1.8 billion project turned into roughly an $18 billion project. The utility doesn't lose in that. In fact, they're they're doing pretty well, and it's it's actually they they win. Yeah. So it's, and it's actually so bad that they can even go to the uh, commission in Georgia and, and say, hey, listen, uh, yeah, we've got these cost overruns. You know, it's, it's really the contractor's fault. Um, but listen, we can't float all the interest expense on this for you know ten years. So you need to make us whole on the interest that we're paying and all the equity that we're putting in there. We should technically be re- earning ten percent. On that equity during construction, uh, you know, even though there's zero benefit to the customers right now, and so that's what they did. So the like, customers are actually paying for net income for like ten years on a project that's like ten times over budget multiple years delayed and uh, has not produced well now it actually is producing but for many years had not produced a single electron and they were just like it was a significant portion of the overall customer bills in Georgia so that's the the kind of like extreme example of the way some of these incentives can manifest themselves and
0: how long has this been in place for this type of accounting uh, practice
1: um, so I don't know the exact history but my understanding is it goes back to like Thomas Edison's days. So when it, w- it was initially like a free market, you just had people like stringing lines everywhere, you know, these these distribution lines. And, you know, it was kind of like a public hazard. If you see some of these really old pictures that are, you know, black and white, it, it really looks ridiculous. And it's frankly dangerous to have so many duplicative lines. And so they said, all right, let's not waste all that, um, uh, you know, uh, all, all this space and uh, money duplicating efforts between different companies. So they essentially gave, gave geographic monopolies to utilities that would serve one particular area so that you wouldn't have any kind of duplication of efforts. And it, in theory, that should result in, in kind of lower costs because you're you're not doubling the amount of fixed infrastructure that you need to serve customers. But I think in practice, as the decades have gone on, it's, it's kind of resulted in some bloat and some, um, you know, just regulatory capture.
0: Some. So let me, let me make this point and then I'll throw it back to James. So... Thomas Edison and then Dave, feel free to, or David, I don't even know what to, I always call him David. I hope he doesn't get offended by Dave. Uh, Thomas Edison, born uh, February 11th, 1847, died October 18th, 1931. So to me, what it sounds like is that for the last 100 some odd years, there has been an incentive structure for utilities to not so much optimize, but to just basically grow their... Uh, bottom line by adding assets in whatever way they can so that they can make more money uh, basically over the years. Cause that's really the the point of a business is to increase their profitability. So that there hasn't been an incentive and a forcing function to have a better grid in for the last hundred years, which I think explains somewhat why the United States grid is the way it is. Don't you guys think?
2: Yeah, so I I mean, before, it's easy to bang on big, inefficient organizations, but there are lots of things that small organizations can't do well enough and we need big organizations for. So before we, you know, turn into just ranting about how bad utilities are, we should at least, we, 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 we need to have some appreciation that, that for the most part, you know, the, the grid in the United States is a really amazing uh, thing. Like you get power, it, it almost always works. You don't really have to think about it. Um, you know, people, at end users can make all kinds of changes. I mean, the system is, it, it has been super flexible for a really long time. And this regulated monopoly thing, as Matt said, the idea behind regulated monopolies is to avoid, you know, red, like, you know, if you have three different water companies, they got to dig up the street three times as often. You got to have three different pipes coming to your house, right? It's all, you, you have all of this redundant infrastructure. And for businesses where infrastructure is the business, where it's the dominant cost, then obviously it makes a lot of sense to just put one set of pipes in. So you got one natural gas supply. The cable company would like it if you only had one cable line, you know. When you become a monopoly, but then now you have this now you have this terrible market problem of well, like, what's the right price, you know, to charge stuff? Because in a in a market where your people compete, you know, you can you can have multiple players. And they can each compete to offer the customer the best deal. So everybody has an incentive to get their costs down, to provide good service, to be reliable. Um, you know, when you get a regulated monopoly, the whole market thing breaks. And so, so instead, we layer on this other function, which is designed to sort of um, uh, sort of balance the interests of the the utility or, you know, the people providing the service and the interests of the customer, like this supposedly neutral third party, which is the regulator and FERC set standards for regulators and then regulators follow these standards in order to regulate the utilities that, that they, that they manage. And, uh, and, and the thing that I didn't, I, I sort of vaguely understood that utilities get a regular, a certain amount of profit. and it, it, But what, what, what Matt said was that, well, they have the, they have assets and then they have costs and then there's the rate that they charge and you know every business is going to kind of look at its costs and look at what the market will bear and split the difference so that you know they can keep their factory operating or whatever, and they can make a decent profit. But the profit kind of falls out of the process. The better job you do, the more profit you make with the utility, and you know this is the, the profit's guaranteed like you're going to make this much money. Well, how much money is the money I'm going to make? Well, how much stuff do you have? <laughs> right? Because you're allowed you know they look at it as a financing transaction like you're you're allowed to make you know, a carry on top of the the equipment you need for the services that you provide. And you're allowed to just pass through all your costs. So two things happen. One is you have an incentive to, as much as possible, bloat the stuff that goes in the category that you're allowed to make a profit on. You want to make that as big as possible. But the other effect, which is also really interesting, is that most businesses, like their costs come out of their profit, right? The higher your costs are, the less your profit is automatically. To utilities, it doesn't matter at all, right? So, you know, it, it, you know, I can have my $80 an hour lineman driving around in a $2 million truck, right? And every lineman can have his own $2 million truck. That's fine if the regulator will let us buy it, you know? And, you know, so essentially like the costs, like they, they don't matter at all. And of course, in the short run, you look at it and you look at like, say what other utilities are doing. And you're in this world where, oh, you know, that's about right. That's about what other people are doing. But if the whole industry, you know, if, if all of the utilities gradually just crank up their cost basis, then the regulators are like, well, you know, Fred next door and Harry down the street, they're all doing the same thing. Like they're paying about the same amount of money for equipment, for people, for whatever services that they need for the utility. So, so you get this sort of relentless bloat. It takes time. It's like the slow creeping disaster that, that comes across. And it would be terrible, except for the fact that electricity like so many things, it's so valuable compared to what we pay for it that we don't really care, right? Like if you if your choice was, this is true of almost anybody, you can pay 10 times as much for power or you can not have power. Like everybody's just going to pay for it, right? Because the value it provides to your life is so much larger than what you pay for it. So to some extent, this, you know, utilities become this redistributional, social redistributional mechanism that just rides on top of, you know, they have a lock on this, on this uh, commodity that everybody needs that has incredible value relative to the prevailing price. Of course, there are people who the marginal price really matters a lot, either because you can be an individual who's on very restricted income, or you could be some industry that's incredibly dependent where the power is a really big input to your your cost of doing business. But like this accounting leads to a it 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 kind of encourages it. It definitely does not discourage inefficiency. That falls on the regulators, and then Matt can probably talk about regula- regulatory capture too, because the you know in, in principle the regulator represents the public, the interests of the public, and their rules and laws, and they have all of these mechanisms in place to try and ensure that. But of course. The regulator talks to the utilities more than they talk to anybody else. (laughs) They got lunch together. (laughs) You know, the guys that used to work at the utility, now they work at the regulator because you got to know the business really well. So they're this really closed group. And regulatory capture, it doesn't, I mean, sometimes it happens because of explicit corruption. I think in the US, it's much more just, you know, these guys, they, you know, they got all the same dinner parties and they, you know, bar mitzvahs or whatever the deal is. They're just like a, a family, and even though they understand that they're, it's an adversarial relationship. And I think for the most part, they're very professional and they try to maintain that adversarial. The, this is the reality of human relations: is that you're a lot more sympathetic to the guy whose complaints you hear every day than the guy whose complaints you you see on a list with 10,000 other people, you know, that might be a bot, right? So it just it has a lot of psychological impact. Come in
1: are areas where like, you, you can actually understand why they, they went a certain way. So like, um, James, you mentioned, um, wanting to provide, you know, lower rates for lower income people. And it's like, yeah, that actually makes a whole lot of sense. Like you, those you know, for the three of us, we don't really think too much about our electricity bill. It's not a big pain point. But if you're, you know, going on, on the line of poverty, it's like turning your, your electricity off is like a very serious situation that like I, as a human being support, you know, like <laughs> trying to avoid that situation as much as possible. And the utilities do a really good job of, you know, like having uh, good systems in place that um, uh, help to avoid that situation. But like one of the ways that this has manifested itself, and it's, it's kind of, it's funny in an economical term when you think about it, is um, they actually have uh, higher rates the more you use. So the thinking is, um, like, higher income earners have bigger houses, and they're going to be, you know, using more electricity. So you should charge them a higher rate that way you can, you know, essentially subsidize the lower income earners. And that, you know, again, just as a human being makes sense. But when you flip on your econ 101 hat, you you think, okay, wait, so your demand curve (laughs) actually looks like a supply curve under that environment, because you're the more you use, the higher your price. It's like a total inversion of Econ 101. Um, and it's like, you can argue like the, whether that's a good thing or not, but it's just like, you really are flipping economics on, on its head. And one other point, then I wanna maybe move on, but just like this really clicks for me. Uh, one time I was touring a uh, gas pipeline that was under construction and we ran out of gas. So we had to, you know, stop and, and fill up. And, you know, it was like a $50 fill up and the guy uh, running the project was very adamant that he was gonna do it, you know, company card and everything like that. And then I, re- it was like, so like, oh, you're going to put this in rate base, aren't you? It's like, oh, yeah, we got to a construction project. And so, like, my mind just kind of exploded because, you know, it's $50. It's not that big of a deal. But then I was doing the math. And I was like, okay, so $25 of that is equity. Uh, so that means at a 10% ROE, we're going to earn $2.50 of net income as a company as a result of filling up our gas tank on this tour. And it's just like, <laughs> it's, it's like in what world is filling up your gas tank a source of profit like it's insane <laughs> like it's, uh, yeah so it's just like it, it really is not all bad and, and and i think um going back to like the the multi-decade trend this really wasn't that big of a deal when it was you know like the electricity load increase you know two three percent every year kind of in proportion with population you had to replace some older power plants with some newer ones and it wasn't really that big of a deal uh but Technology is really changing things in quite dramatic ways and and very rapidly in such a way that um, not only like these these regulations are are kind of getting out of date, but like they're coming into really severe pressure uh, with economic reality of of lower cost, you know, wind and solar, and frankly the fact that these can be distributed. So there's kind of more players who think that they can play in this space, which has historically been you know, the, the good old boys club of only the utilities. And now, like, anybody can put one on the roof or, you know, people want to connect batteries to the grid. And so there's there's this new tension that didn't exist before. And um, it's, like, some of it, uh, we'll, we'll talk about interconnections too, I hope, uh, in a little bit. But it's, like, uh, that's becoming a real source of, of headaches now too. And there's a sympathetic view for what the utilities are going through, trying to go from a world where you had, like, a couple new power plants every year that you had to figure out, like, could the grid handle these to now like tens of thousands of different like very small projects um like wind and mostly solar projects like trying to get connected to the grid and you've got to do all these studies like how does this um impact like the grid upgrades needed and then you got to like pull people out so then you got to restudy everything it's just like it's a system that was not designed to handle uh the realities of of the current you know energy landscape it'll be
2: fun to talk about that too because i think that's mostly uh, not true, and and hand waving by utilities. But I do understand. I understand the argument. Anyway, just to step back a minute, the reason that this is relevant is because one of the things that I wanted to talk to Matt about was like the renewable transition, right? Like that's the interesting thing. And we're all big Tesla fanboys here, and Tesla's playing its role. So like, what does it mean for Tesla? Like as as this stuff comes out, and there's kind of two. Like I think about this is there's two. Uh, ways, are two kind of categories of impediments to the rollout. One of them is physics, like, you know, what is physically possible? And then the other one is who's pushing back <laughs> and why are they pushing against it? Right. And so, you know, understanding the utility incentives, because utilities and regulators are super influential in this in this game and having a sense of what their incentives are. And how much influence they have is is part of this equation and i think one of the, one of the things that i thought that matt and i might disagree about maybe we do disagree about a little bit is that is that i i really like the analysis i've done and i've done a lot of analysis of this kind of market related stuff over the years i start with the physics and then i look to see does, is it creating a really big profit opportunity and you know, most of the time, like my guess is eight or nine times out of 10, if there's a good profit opportunity, somebody will exploit that, right? But then there's this other 10% of the time where incumbents or somebody in the system has enough influence that they can quash it. You know, you don't make progress because it's not in the narrow self-interest of some organization that has a lot of influence over the system. And so they, they're, they manage to hold the progress back, and the thing that that I was sort of suspecting Matt and I might disagree about it is like, well, how 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 much is that influence? Is it because this is a thing that I see uh, in a lot of dialogue is that oh, this thing's not going to happen because you know because of this rule or because of this, and the rule won't change because the incumbent doesn't want it to, or the rule won't change because this organization doesn't want it to, even though it makes perfect sense in the big picture for this. For this thing to change, like how much of it is our social inertia how much of it is our bureaucracy and how much of it is well you just can't do it it's not physically possible so um anyway so here we are let's talk about the transition uh so uh yeah it's one other thing uh we as when we were talking about it the other day it seemed like talking through tesla's master plan three was kind of an interesting framework too because it kind of ties together the whole the way you know tesla and tesla seeing the world and whatnot and it's sort of a framework for talking about the transition too because it, it was built as an argument for why the transition is a perfectly reasonable thing yeah so matt from your
0: perspective did you have any anything that you wanted to sort of add on from what james just said so the like you know the two things the physical there's the physical the physics based uh uh sort of advancement to a renewable future and then you have bodies in the middle (laughs) literally that would say no i don't care how profitable you can be or how much better it is for us or how much more efficient you ain't gonna get it because it's ours any commentary there and then uh feel free to move it along however you
1: yeah so i mean i think in in the long arc of history like like if you're looking in like a century long time frame physics is gonna win out you know like logic's gonna win out so it's really i think the the main um Uh, disagreements we might have is, is around the timing. Um, And so what I find kind of interesting in this space right now is like, even the utility companies are saying all the right things of like, oh, we're going to get to like, you know, zero emissions by 2040, 2050, whatever, you know, like we fully support the transition to renewables, but they want to make damn sure that they're they're doing it on their terms. And so like one of the, um, just like you've been seeing this manifest itself in several ways. So like, um, you know, Nevada is the perfect, place for solar. Like it's very, very clear, like you should be doing tons of solar in Nevada, Uh, but NV Energy, um, who's the, the big utility there, uh, came out with a new rule that they're fighting for it, um, where they need to own at least 50% of any solar project anywhere in the state, which is just like kind of crazy. And so like utilities are just pulling these sorts of tricks all the time. Um, you know, California recently passed, uh, some net metering reform, uh, which really hurts the economics of rooftop solar. I actually, I, I would take a stand in the utilities camp for that one. We can maybe go on that as a side note if we want to, but like, they're, you know, they've got a lot of tools in their tool chest and and frankly, a lot of like regulatory pull to be able to say all the right things, but to say, you know, we really are the best suited company. We'll make sure we do it safe. We'll make sure we do it reliably, you know, and they've got all these good things that they can, you know, say with the straight face.
2: And they're all true, right? Yeah. I mean, all of these arguments are reasonable arguments because the decision has to balance all of these things and you have to put a weight on them. And the guys that get to decide what the weights are, they can shift the weights around. So the argument still looks reasonable, but they get the answer they want. (laughs) Right. So that's where we are there. I mean, so we we had a little back and forth about the this rate change back when the first time they proposed it when it fell through, and then recently it did go through the the net metering change. Uh, net net metering is is basically this idea that if you have generation on site, that power you put into the grid, you get paid the same amount that you would have paid for that power if you got it from the grid. And in a certain sense, this, this makes a lot of sense. Like if there's a relatively small number of people doing this kind of stuff, well, the power that you send out of your front door goes in your neighbor's front door. Like that is the first place it goes, right? So you are exactly, power. and if your neighbor's paying, you know, 38 cents a kilowatt hour. Why shouldn't you get the 38 cents a kilowatt hour? Why should you pay four? And because it's only going to go six feet and go in your neighbor's house, and then he's going to pay 38. And the utility company is basically making 30 cents for the short stretch of copper that runs from your neighbor's house to your house, right? Essentially. And and, in that kind of situation, that's where it's small. Now, of course, if everybody has this and everybody's exporting at the same time now of course the utility has a legitimate issue and one of the arguments utilities have made about this which is a totally legit argument it deserves a certain amount of weight is that once you get to a certain amount of penetration It requires the utility to do extra stuff, to add infrastructure, to add controls and that kind of stuff to make sure that the grid stays stable in the presence of all of these separate little independent uh, generators that are running out there. And the the real question is, like, at what point does that and that used to be the core argument behind, you know, restricting net metering and net, net metering has always been restricted. They were only willing to give it to. Oh. net metering is the contract you get when you have a generate when you have generation, which basically requires the utility to pay you whatever you would have paid them, which in essence, it just spins your meter backwards. So your electric meter goes forwards and you know, the bill that's tacking up you know, through the month as you use power and for every kilowatt in X that you generate and give back to them, the meter just moves backwards. So it makes accounting really easy. And in fact, once upon a time, the meters did just spin backwards. And that was how the accounting was done. Like when the system started out, we all had mechanical meters that would just go backwards if the power was leaving your house instead of coming in. So it was a great technical hack in addition to being a contract hack.
1: The, the point I was going to make though is like, it used to be the case that these systems were so dumb that they literally had a guy Walk to your house once a month and just take a measuring of the of the physical meter. So they didn't have a better way to bill it than this, you know. Like there was there was literally no other option. It's only with the introduction of, of smart meters in the last you know uh, decade or so where you actually can have real time data from uh, customers' usage that, that the utilities even have the tool set to offer something other than that metering. So like this is when we're talking about how antiquated like this industry is. Like think about that. Like the the economics of like somebody going to every single house once a month in the entire country. And just like, think of like the cost of that and just how unnecessary it was. We were doing that 10 years ago. It's crazy. We're like we had like dog bite, like safety trainings at this company that was just, is wild. Anyways, I'm sorry. Um, I, I wanted to actually maybe, maybe steer James to, you mentioned like the physics and, and the modeling that, that you're doing. And I think that's a, something that, that deserves a, a deeper dive. Um, the, the kind of grid of the future, which, you know, Tesla is, is pointing toward in in their master plan and, and which I think you and I mostly agree on. Um, would you maybe like try to lay out for, for everyone? What does that grid look like and, and why does it make the most kind of economic sense?
2: Um, yeah, so I started doing this analysis uh, like back in 2000, I started building little models trying to understand like what the transition looks like. The most recent one I did was back in 2019 where I started rolling in Wright's uh, law or learning curves associated with the, looking at the tech over the next couple of decades, there was a time when you could just look at how fast, what the trend line was of how much of what different kinds of capacity was getting added, try to figure out if it was a linear and exponential and what the term was and sort of extrapolate forward that way. But now we actually, we have other uh, tools that let us sort of predict fairly. The, these industries are mature enough that you can, do a pretty good job of predicting like what it will cost to provide a particular service or a particular capability five or 10 years in the future. And so I wanted to start rolling that stuff in. So I started doing that stuff back in uh, 2019 or something. And uh, like I've, it has seemed for a really long time. Like if you look at, uh, should I explain what learning curves are? Do people know what learning curves are? So uh, there's a, there's a funny thing about, building complicated things in the world or providing complicated services in the world is that, I mean, it's, it's unsurprising that we get better at doing stuff like the cost of doing any particular thing. It tends to go down over time. The more that you do it, because, uh, because you get practice doing it. Like if you're a person, you know, the first time you build a chair, it takes a certain amount of time and it costs you a certain amount. And the second, third, fourth, fifth chair, you get more clever about how you're doing it. You find cheaper, kinds of wood, you get better tools, you you just get faster and the costs come down. When you get a chair factory and you've got 10 people doing it, well, now you can organize the work in different ways. There's just like, as you scale up, there are all these things that that you can do to reduce the cost and effort that it takes. So unsurprisingly, everything, everything, everything that people make, every service that we provide has has a, um, a tendency to decrease in cost the more we do it as a society, whether it's individuals or companies or whatever the deal is. So this general, this concept is called a learning curve. And and there's this, it has this very surprising property, which is when you look at systems that are kind of scaled up a bit, and you look at how they improve over time, they have this surprising characteristic, which is that you can look at how they've been improving over time. And it, it's actually a very good indicator of how they will improve in the future, going quite far into the future. And the this relationship, it like it's been known since like the 1850s or something. Uh, a guy at Curtis Wright, whose name happened to be Wright, like back in the early 1900s, formalized this. Like he studied their manufacturing line to try to understand it. And he came up with this formulation, which is called Wright's Law. It's just basically uh, this observation that you have a there's a, this log log relationship between how much you've done something and how good you are at doing it and uh, a way of describing it is that you know every time you've done say twice as much as you ever did before you know you've done you've built one chair then you build two then you build four eight sixteen every time you've doubled the number of chairs you do that you get a certain percentage of, of improvement between those and the interesting thing is it tends to go with that doubling cycle so for instance you know, if your second chair was 10% less than your first chair, then your fourth chair will be 10% less than your second and your eighth will be 10% less than your fourth. And so on. like each time you've doubled them. And uh, yes, it, it, that that is, that's because, you know, you do the easy stuff first and then the, the things you haven't done to improve it, you know? So yeah, it's a diminishing returns kind of curve, but, but this uh, this, learning rate thing, it, it it does seem like broadly, different technologies, product services or whatnot, they have a learning curve. You can figure out what it is and it tends, uh, uh, assuming that you've just more or less got a free market and there's no weird, you know, sort of tariffs that come into the play, or you don't have like the one factory in the world that makes some important uh, thing blows up or whatever, you know, if you don't have these weird outlier events, everything sort of moves smoothly. It ends up being pretty predictable. So you can predict 10 years from now, what a solar panel is going to cost or 10 years from now, what a what a, what a, what a, what a windmill is going to cost for generating electricity or a coal plant or a nuclear power plant, or, you know, that, and it seems like this wouldn't work because the world is so complicated. Right. And like, when you build a car, like you can apply this to the model three. I mean, we, people have gone back and they studied Ford's model uh, T, right. And it perfectly follows this learning curve thing. Like it's one of those things that you learn in business school, when you learn about the learning curve that you go back to this classic implementation for So, for things that are scaling smoothly, you get this law. Uh, So the interesting thing, uh, one of the interesting things about about these learning curves is they exist and they actually work really well. They're quite reliable about predicting how technologies and industries and stuff evolve. And the second thing is is like, no, nobody uses them to make predictions, (laughs) right? And in fact, one of the interesting things about that, you know, uh, Matt and I, w- when we briefly talked about the Tesla master plan thing, we were we were looking at Tesla, at how much Tesla is uh, saying, well, this will happen or that will happen. And I'm like, yeah, some of this stuff like doesn't make sense. And I realized when I went back and I looked at the math that they don't have any learning curves in there, <laughs> right? They assume everything costs the same as it does today to a first approximation. So why do you do that, right? Why did they do that? The thing is, if you assume... Uh, that there 's going to be a learning curve, and there 's somebody on the other side of the argument who one 's going to argue against you. The first thing they 're going to go after is your learning curve calculation because learning curves are the kind of thing where they do work they're, but they 're empirical laws that there 's no there 's no fundamental physical thing that you can derive from fundamentals that says, this is what it's going to be. It's definitely going to follow this. It's an observed property of these big, complicated systems. And we don't really understand exactly why it works. It does work, but we don't understand it. And so if you propose a learning curve to somebody who wants to push back on your argument, they will attack your learning curve, right? And so so generally, if you want to make an argument and you don't want to get you don't want to have to fight over it. You just don't assume any learning curve, right? Because that removes a point that can be. But the thing is, if what you want to know is what the world is really going to look like, you have to look at the learning curve because in some cases, the learning curve completely dominates every other thing that's going on. And this is like back in, I would argue, that back in the 90s, you could look forward to today and you could more or less predict where, we're, where we are, like it wouldn't have been that hard. And one of the things you could have predicted back in the 90s is, it's all gonna be solar power. It's just, it's all gonna be solar power. I mean, there's gonna be other stuff. There'll be places where, you know, you have a dam, use the dam, or you have hydro, use the hydro, uh, you know, it, or the, the uh, geothermal, you're gonna use it, this stuff, right? But to a first approximation, solar is gonna be so much cheaper than everything else that only in situations where you just can't use solar, like there's some reason why you just can't use it. Those are the only situations where you're really gonna be using much of anything else. And why does this happen? Because if you look at the learning uh, curve of solar, it's 28%, which is really, really steep. That wind power has a pretty steep curve, but it's 15%. Now, so coal has a learning curve is 2%, right? So coal, like it, the learning curve on coal is, is really terrible. And on nuclear, it's like negative something percent, like two, three, four, something like that, if you look at the numbers. Um, So it's complicated. We are getting better at building uh, nuclear power plants. But the thing is, our expectation of what constitutes a nuclear power plant is constantly shifting. We require them to be safer and safer. And so that's why they get more and more expensive because we require them to be safer. And the way that we ensure safety is we have a giant bureaucracy with lots of things involved that ensures that, that safety because it's a really important thing. And every year that bureaucracy grows by a predictable amount, right? So, so power plant, nuclear power plants get more and more expensive over time. They have a negative learning curve. The technology gets better, but it turns out that these other things that are actually more important than the technology as inputs to the price, they get worse over time, or at least they have to date. There, I know there are people who want to break that and it's not like it's not possible to break it, but that's been the history up to now. So you could, look, you could have looked at this decades ago and predicted the future pretty well. And I'm fascinated by the fact that you could do that. And so it's been a hobby of, of mine tracking this and watching it go. And so to try and
0: sort of uh, encapsulate, so What you're saying is that if you take into account this learning curve equation, and if we put it within the like, put it against what Tesla Master Plan Three is saying the future is going to look like, the learning curve is painting a far better a far better picture for the transition than the plan does. Is that a good way of characterizing what you said? Okay,
2: so I'll give you one example here. So um, I think this is relatively easy to explain. So solar and batteries, they both have, I mean, the way you measure learning rates varies and they're a little noisy, so people disagree about the numbers. But to a first approximation, people agree that solar and batteries are both around 25% learning rate, right? So, So all of the things being equal, like if the doubling time for both of them was about the same, you'd expect them to maintain their same cost ratio. So when you build out a grid, solar is intermittent, and the way you fix the intermittency is you have batteries. They store excess solar when you have excess and they give you back that solar energy when you're running a little on the low side. Like, for instance, your batteries can charge up during the day and they discharge at night because you've got more solar during the day than you have at night. So batteries are how you fix that. So what's the optimum? How many batteries do you want and how much solar do you need in order to supply a system, a country, a state, a business? Um, well, you can, you, you look at the total amount of it, it at a minimum, you have to generate as much solar over the course of a year as you, as you use over the course of a year. And actually you're going to need to generate more than that because you're never going to get a perfect match between the batteries and the solar. So you have a little bit of, of extra that you do, but, but generally because it goes up and down, uh, over time and the, the, you get variance not just during the day, but seasonally and, and, and so forth one of the things you do is you either build more batteries than you need or you build more solar than you need, right? Because if you have, for instance, if you have many times more solar generation, if you have five times the solar generation that you need, the number of times when you don't have enough solar to do the job gets smaller and smaller. And so you don't need as much batteries to cover that hole. The flip side is the less over generation you have, the more you need in batteries. Well, batteries are more expensive than solar is. So when you try to figure out, well, what's the cheapest system that gets me good coverage there's there's some ratio between batteries and solar and the main driver of that ratio is how much do they cost relative to one another like if one of them is a lot more expensive you want to overbuild the cheap one right all the things being equal you get uh, the same capability for less so in tesla's predictions right now they're basically looking at the current price of batteries looking at the current price of solar assuming it's going to be the same in 2035 literally (laughs) you can look at the numbers i was shocked but they they are they're they're modeling no improvement in the cost of either of these two things now to a first approximation you might say well batteries and solar they have the same learning curve that's okay right except the thing is so these are some from some numbers i did back in 2019 i figured um you know that the world needed 50 terawatts of nameplate solar to like cover everything and we needed 240 terawatt hours of batteries. Just, you know, sort of top line numbers, not precise. Um, So the thing is, the world, that means that to get there, we have to build 200 times as much solar as we have built up to date. So that's seven, seven, uh, eight doublings, right? That is, so we get to apply that 28% improvement in cost like eight times over the volume of batteries that we're going to create. And the result is that, You know, if the current the current cost of batteries, uh, the current cost of solar is like 50 cents a watt or something like that. And so over that entire 10, you know, terawatt build out, the average price that you would pay is like 19 cents because, you know, it changes over time. And then you add all those together, you take the average price and it ends up being 19 cents. Right. So that's, you know, it's a reduction in price of uh, like a factor of three or something. But but batteries. So for batteries, we need uh, now assume they're both built out over roughly the same time span. Right. As as we built the thing out. So for the thing is, for batteries, we need forty eight hundred times as much batteries as we have built to date so that's 13 doublings it's not eight doublings right and what that means is the average price of those batteries that, to do the whole build out is 20 times less than what you were paying right now so that is if you look at the cost of this whole system over that window what does it cost to build it out the cost of the of the of the batteries f- is going to fall 10 times relative the average cost of the batteries is going to fall 10 times relative to the average cost of the solar and the solar is falling really fast right so the thing is To a first approximation, you can like look at the world and say the batteries are just going to be stupidly cheap compared to how they are. And what does that say? Right. What it says is that if you try to predict how the world is actually going to look, you need to assume that the batteries are way cheaper, like 20 X cheaper than they are today. And that that's the and and that's how you're going to build it out. And what that means is that is that you're going to use batteries for all your storage and you're going to end up building less solar than you would have otherwise because relatively speaking the batteries get cheaper relative to the solar than the solar does even though the solar comes down a lot in price makes sense
1: yeah and it's it's such a, a a misunderstood point too i mean so you know going back to your your example and like solar in the 90s everybody thought it was dumb i remember so like in Oh, 08 even. I mean, that's really the, the time I started paying attention to this stuff. I mean, solar was by far the most expensive form of generation. And the commentary at that time was, well, like solar is used for like, you know, space systems. And it's not really like a realistic uh, industrial application. Like you maybe have like a very small solar panel on some like remote street sign that needs a light or something like that. And that's kind of the extent of solar. And so when that's Like you only had used solar for like building space systems and like very small remote applications. The industry is naturally very small. So you went in 2008 from it was by far the most expensive. I think it was somewhere in the range of $3,000 a kilowatt uh, to just 15 years later, it was the single cheapest. You know, it it had like a 90% uh, cost reduction in the span of 15 years and all entirely due to scale. So solar, you know, has kind of gone along this this cost cutting journey. I don't know what if they had two or three cumulative doublings. I think by now, um, but like batteries were just in the very early innings of that phase, and so like it, it's just a less mature technology than than solar is right now. But it's it's going to be a mistake uh, to just look at the current prices and say, all right, well we need to spend a lot of money on transmission because batteries are not going to you know pencil out as being economic uh, when you're not looking five, 10 years down the road and saying, oh. Actually, like from a holistic physics perspective, um, really overbuilding solar makes the most sense. And then the way that you backfill that is by, you know, building out a battery, you know, uh, infrastructure as well. So that's something we could probably spend a lot of time on discussing why that makes sense and what opportunities it presents. But I'll yeah, pass it to you,
0: I mean, I was going to say that's exactly it. Cause so, so what I'm hearing and, and this is just reiterating some of the points, but we're going to have a lot more batteries than we think. I mean, that's, is that the overarching theme here that based on the projections that we have now?
2: So Tesla's master plan three, the battery projections are low compared. And as I was working through it, I realized I was thinking about it the wrong way. I had been thinking, oh, this is Tesla's prediction of the future. And it's not. And actually, when you look at it a different way, you go back. It's a super conservative argument that even if things go horribly, horribly wrong, it still works, (laughs) right? That's what master plan three is. It's just like, there is no world in which it doesn't make sense to do renewable. It's not a prediction of what will actually happen. It's a prediction of what would happen under the most conservative kind of reasonable assumptions that you can make about the transition. And that's shocking that to hear,
0: right? It it does because mm-hmm. it's shocking to hear because when when it was it was unveiled, it was sort of like everybody, at least the circles that I was paying attention to, was like, "Wow, this is incredible! We're we're gonna be so much more efficient. We're gonna save so much money, and we don't need that much more. We just have to get on a path." And then from this conversation, is like, "Dude, that's like a uh, that's like the worst case scenario. Like you that's have no idea." <laughs> yeah.
2: Although, j- just to be perfectly clear, the difference between the worst case scenario in terms of like it. There is getting the world green and there's like what it costs to get there, you know, just in, in, from a pure economic standpoint. So the thing is, the best case scenario is not like 10 times cheaper than the, than the worst case scenario that Tesla's kind of outlying. The best case scenario is like half as much money or something like that. So it doesn't really change, you know, the 10,000 foot math all that much looking at it from a long ways away. I mean... Even under the worst case scenario, it's way cheaper than staying on fossil fuels like that. A, a non-intuitive thing that I think Tesla really wanted to push is people think it's going to cost more money and that it's going to be more harmful to the environment and it's going to be disruptive to society. They're going to be because, you know, we've been inundated by this perspective uh you know, from, I don't know, fear mongering or mainstream media, you know, taking the side of fossil fuel. I don't know. I don't know where the source of it comes from, but this general sense that if we want a green world, it's going to cost us. And the reality is totally the opposite. The green world is cheaper as the technology develops. It's just, it's just a win, win, win everywhere. I mean, it's disruptive in the sense that industries have to change and we have to change some the ways that we do some stuff, but you know, the air gets cleaner and, uh, and, and power gets cheaper and it becomes way more abundant. And, you know, it's a good step towards averting, you know, climate, you know, uh, emissions related climate problems. And we there's just it's just win, win, win. And it, the thing is, it's so win, win, win that you can take these really conservative assumptions and do a model and it's still a win, right? It doesn't change the direction. The reality is actually going to turn out to be, you know, roughly two X better than, than, Tesla's model. Like when I put the curves in and actually calculate the costs and then I redistribute like the, you know, how much of these various types of energy we make, I figure, you know, it costs about half as much as what, as what Tesla is. And an interesting thing about this is it, it's time independent, whether it takes five years or 10 years, it, because the thing about learning curves is they don't care they don't care the the learning curve doesn't say if you make two chairs over two days and four chairs over four days it's just did you make two did you make four and so on so whether we do the transition over 10 years or we do it over 20 years it ends up costing the same thing in terms of the new built-out capacity um although the existing infrastructure it costs us every day that we keep using it right so obviously the sooner you do it the sooner you get all all the benefits And I think we're, you know, we are rate limited, there is a physics rate limit, you got to build all these battery factories. And then you got to build all the batteries. And then you got to put them in things and you got to truck them to sites and you got to hook them up. You know, so there's an obstacle. And then the other obstacle, the one we started with is, and you got to convince the utility companies to let you do it, right? Because right now they own the grid.
0: Yeah. So, but as I guess the overarching point, and I'll throw it over to you, Matt. So to kind of give a context into why what what James explained works, and sort of uh, add your your uh, additional sort of context there is that as long as there's a player or multiple players that's pushing towards that, the momentum and the forcing functions are there for this to happen. It's just we can argue about five years or, like you said, ten years or twenty years, but as long as there is that doubling effect happening it will happen it's just it will happen the math is going to dictate it and then hopefully those regulatory bodies or bodies that are in the middle over time wake up to the fact that this is just uh, this just makes a lot more sense and that's the discussion we can get into maybe later on as to what like how could it truly not happen like what what are the huge hurdles that a player like Tesla or others would have to overcome but Matt I'll throw it over to you and uh feel free to provide context into what James just uh yeah
1: yeah, so like, th- there's definitely going to be, you know, pushback on this. You know, there'll be some kind of, you know, rule fights on, on the edges. But I think where, where James and I agree is just that, like, the, the math is, is so ridiculously in favor of, of putting, you know, low-cost solar everywhere you can. Um, I mean, just to, to maybe put it in perspective, we were talking about um, Edison and how, you know, kind of what a legacy we have in our existing infrastructure because of him. But if you think of generating assets, they're all doing the exact same thing that he did with his first plant in New York where you're spinning a rotor inside a generator. Everything we've done to date, except for solar, has been, how can we, you know, spin that rotor in a generator more efficiently? So like a coal plant is just, you're making a steam turbine, you're, you're boiling steam to go turn a steam turbine to turn the, the rotor inside your generator to generate electricity. And, you know, natural gas plants are doing the same thing, but instead of a steam turbine, you're doing it just with a, like an aero derivative kind of derived gas turbine that's spinning it. Wind turbines are doing the same thing. like. Geothermal, uh, hydro, all these things are just how can we spin the rotor around? And anytime you're spinning a rotor around, you need to have like pumps and support systems. You need to have like uh, the chemistry uh, to make sure your water and your steam turbine is like exactly right. Otherwise, you can have these like costly buildups. You need to have full time, 24-7 crews in almost all of these plants um, and like massive maintenance budgets. And then for everything except for wind in that list that I just described, you've got your fuel cost, which is a really, really important cost. Um, I mean, pretty much the most important, the the most efficient, um, uh, the gas plants today. If if natural gas is say two dollars per you know MMBTU, then you're gonna have eighteen dollar per megawatt hour gas. Uh, that's like the most kind of efficient that that you can get right now, or, or sorry, uh, eighteen dollar per megawatt hour electricity. Um, and and so then if you Compare that, and that's just the mar- so that's the marginal cost, so not counting the maintenance, not causing like the depreciation of the actual equipment that you put in there, like getting paid back on on your initial investment and all the annual you it's know like spend that you cost, need. basically, yeah, just the fuel cost, and so you're in this environment now where it's just like to make one incremental megawatt hour it's costing you eighteen dollars, and now solar is in this position where the average cost all in is like eighteen dollars per <laughs> megawatt hour, and so People are just going to like be doing this math of like, okay, well, my total cost can undercut your marginal cost, so I'm going to just build this, and like you can deal with the consequences. So like, there, there's going to be some fights on, around permitting and everything like that. But when your total cost is undercutting the marginal cost of the incumbents, like that, that equation is just going to win out in the end. Um, and and that's where I, I think the, what James was talking about earlier is such an important point too, um, that we're going to essentially overbuild. So in order to um, have the grid be reliable. Um, maybe you're, you know, you're gonna end up spending, you know, thirty six dollars, or I guess you're, you're assuming five five times overbuild on solar. Is that right, James?
2: So I, so I've done the model a couple of different ways, and I think five is about the right number. Okay. It it depends a little bit on. At, on siting the cost of transmission, you know, there's all these other things that go into it. But it's somewhere, it, it's definitely going to be somewhere between three and seven. It, the okay. optimum is going to be there. So I just pick five. So we,
1: we think Tesla did two somewhere in that neighborhood. But like the, the, the um, basic assumption is that the lowest cost way to have electricity in the future is to build more generation capacity than you need. And you're going to, so you'll, you'll do that, some combination of extra solar and batteries, and that'll be lower cost than the existing system. We haven't even talked yet about the fact that, hey, now you've got all this free electricity. What useful things can you do with that? Like you've got you 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 know three to seven x your, your capacity. Why don't we build some new data centers and um you know like increase our compute capacity or just like lower the cost of anything you know through like water desalination. Like there's like there's a whole other like well, the conversation so far this first hour has just been how can we like reduce costs going forward and carbon emissions and all that stuff is great. And then it's just like, oh, by the way, if we do that, you've got like this huge like economic upside to that we haven't even talked about yet, and so that's like another super exciting thing uh, to to think about. Well, how that would impact society.
2: Great, James, you were, you were saying something. I, I we um, if you if you have if you had free or it, actually it's negative cost power, right? Because th- that like depending on how the grid gets built out and stuff like that. You can people will actually pay you to take power. Like it, it's cheaper for them to keep the grid systems running, the transformers running things level. So you end up in situations where, like, you can actually get paid to use up power to take it off of the grid. This is true today uh, in, in in grids that we have. In a really mature grid, it might not uh, where it's really easy to store power and it's really easy to turn basically anything off. At any time, you, we, we might not get to a point where people will pay you to take power. But imagine that the US had, say, three times its existing, like we had all, every, all our bases covered, everything we need to do, everything that we want. And then on top of that, we have, you know, petawatt hours a year of power just available for free. Like if you've got any useful thing that you can do with it, it doesn't pollute, it doesn't add, like there's no downside to using it at all, right? I mean, you have to run a cable, you have to plug it into your thing or whatnot like like how many different ways could you use that to like make the world better today we build a lot of our industrial processes designed around the idea of using power continuously so if you take an existing factory it frequently doesn't make sense to run it for the you know eight hours a day when the when there's super super free power available right like if you build an aluminum smelter I mean, aluminum smelter is kind of an interesting case because power is actually most of the cost of smelting aluminum. So you could run an aluminum smelter, you know, eight hours a day, and you could still make money if the power was really, really cheap. And that might be one of the first things that happens. But most factories, the cost of the equipment actually is is a significant component of it. So when we do the math on like, you know, could you use that much power today? It doesn't look very good. But as this stuff comes online, I think we will probably find ways to use all of this power to do useful stuff.
0: But, but just to highlight a, the overarching point that we have here, none of this is possible without really
2: cheap batteries, correct? Uh, so the the Tesla's master plan that they did, they do the whole model and they don't assume the batteries get any cheaper. Their battery prices for 2030 to 2040 are ba- basically today's battery prices. Even their with a surplus prices- energy scenario?
0: Yeah. Okay. I, it's, wow.
2: So... Once again, Tesla basically in master plan three, because the way I describe this is it's an extremely conservative argument. It doesn't assume it basically to first approximation, it doesn't assume the technology gets any better. It assumes you just have today's technology. You just have stuff at today's prices. Uh, I guess the one thing it does assume is we build more factories to build more batteries, because obviously, if you don't build more factories, like we don't have enough battery capacity to to build this thing out. But they're not assuming that future battery p- factories are any more efficient or any cheaper in the study that they do. Even so, they show that, build, that, it, that even if the technology doesn't get better, it still makes sense to do the transition. Like that's the essential argument, I would say. The master plan three makes. The reality is, the technology is going to get a lot better, and we can look at history. We can look at these learning curves that have turned out to be very, very reliable predictors of future price changes. I mean, not precise to the one cent or something, but they they're good at the at the trend line. Like if they tell you this is going to go down ten times in cost, well, maybe it'll be eight. Or maybe it'll be 12, but it's not going to be two. (laughs) It's going to be like eight. It's going to be in that ballpark. And, and, you know, 8x cost reductions, they completely change the playing field in terms of what you decide you want to do, you know, in order to achieve a particular effect in the world. So, yeah, so this stuff doesn't have to happen for Master Plan 3 at all. Like nothing has to change for Master Plan 3, except that you have to build the factories, build the batteries, put the stuff online.
0: I just, the only reason why I asked that question, because I, again, I... I think it just it is such a weird thing to think about that the worst case scenario that Tesla has or the the worst case scenario that Tesla has put forth as a future of sustainable energy that a lot of us were incredibly impressed by will include a world where the economics around batteries and solar don't really have to change and we end up in a situation where we build over capacity where it can give us uh, the ability to have energy systems that will allow us to run say projects at basic at basically what we call negative prices or or say free energy prices i think that is so fundamentally insane that it's sort of I just wanted to make sure I fully grasp that and that the audience is also hearing that because that's wild. And and so when I hear that, like the all in guys, you know, Chamath is is a big guy on there. That's always saying we're going towards uh, f- almost free energy with solar, almost free energy with solar. This dynamic that we're outlining here is sounds to me like the function that's going to get us there.
2: So that's it's actually an interesting thing. Matt, I'm curious, you know, I, I mean, you've observed the electricity prices are going up for end users, right? Like I've observed this too. So do you, do you think that we do get to a future world? What's that?
1: Quite substantially in the last couple of years too. I mean, it's uh, like inflation spiked and so did your electricity rates. Kind of, kind of interesting.
2: So do you, do you, so this is one of those places where obviously the incumbents, you know, they really would like to see the power prices not go down. And, uh, you know, the money has to come from somewhere. Do you think that we'll see, uh, you know, super cheap electricity in the future. What does it take to get there from, what do you think has to change in the industry to enable that to happen? I mean, do companies just have to fail and new players come in or what, what happens?
1: So, um, I, I mean, the, the, the forcing function is, is, is just going to be the economics. I think this is kind of where you and I agree. And we've already started to see this a little bit. Um, so the most expensive source of kind of baseload power in the past has been coal. And all the coal plants are not all the coal plants, but coal plants were retiring at a absolutely crazy pace the last, you know, fifteen years or so. Um, you know, my so the company I was working for was, was planning to build a new coal plant in two thousand eight. You know, then all of a sudden natural gas prices start coming down and you know, renewable prices or renewable cost efficiency really starts getting impressive. Thankfully, they abandoned that project. But like as recently as 2008, people were well, actually some companies still are in, on the margins looking at new coal plants. But for the most part, like, it's just everybody recognizes that it's not because of like, any re- weird regulations or anything, it's just economically, you know, kind of suicide to, to build a new coal plant. And even in most cases to operate one, which is just like wild. Um, so like you you, what you've seen is those have become stranded assets so they are not economically viable um and so like the companies are just shutting them down so then they're they're kind of coming out of their rate base um and they need. in most cases the utility will just replace that so they'll say okay well you know this isn't economical anymore um we didn't you know generate the the value to our customers that we initially thought we would when you approved this but we're not going to take the hit for that the market changed so uh now we're gonna go and uh, meet their needs with this new lower cost alternative. And to their credit, they, they will be able to serve their customers in a lower cost manner than if they had to just continue to operate the coal plant. Um, but it's no skin off their back uh, is, is kind of the interesting thing. So um, where where I think the the kind of biggest battle is gonna come is is on like the transmission and, and distribution side. So um, we've seen this a little bit uh, like with, with net metering, all of a sudden um, in California, like you were saying, you you go from a system where you got paid whatever your retail rate was all in bundled. Not only the generation costs, but um, and taking a step back here, I think most people don't realize that the the transportation of the electricity is about two thirds of your overall delivered bill. Um, so you know your generation is one piece of it, but you're paying, um, you know, two thirds of your total bill is is for the transmission and distribution system charges. Um, so that's that's like a very uh, huge piece of, of why I think this is going to be um, uh, potentially, I, I guess, a battle to solve. Um, James, I sent you a graph and maybe we'll, we'll put it up here on, on the, the post of um, how how much the kind of mix of utility rates has changed over the last, uh, I think it was 15 years or so. Um, and well, I'll, I'll pull it up so I'm not uh, misnarrating the numbers, but essentially in so the, the, the headline number, I'll just say, and you, you, can, you can put it on after, is uh, that in 2002, um, delivery, so, so think of it as you know, transmission and distribution, was 33% of PG&E, so Pacific Gas and Electrics, uh, bundled commercial rate So just the, the rate that all, like, like medium-sized businesses were paying. Um, you know, s- since that time, what we've spoken about, about generation costs really coming down has panned out. Uh, But if you look at the overall rates, they've increased, and so now in 2021, with the latest data point we have, the the delivery charges were 60% of the overall bundled rate, which is just wild. So you've essentially doubled the proportion of the total bill that's coming from the, the grid charges as opposed to the actual generation of the electricity. And so that's a trend that I think is definitely going to continue because utilities... Are going to have lower generation costs going forward. They're going to take advantage of, of this, you know, of, of this new technology just as much as you know consumers and everyone else will. So generation costs are going to come down. And where I think the real battle is going to be is, oh well, you want you've got intermittent you know, solar and wind and all these renewables that are lowering your cost. That's great, but if you want reliability, you need to connect to the grid. And so that's going to be, you know, their kind of trump card. I think, and and where they they uh, have their battle is, um, they don't really care. Um, how their, their rates get split up necessarily. In, in this example, I gave at the very top of the show, they just said, hey, here's how much revenue we need to make. You know, we had been charging you just like on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis, but if you're going to start generating some in your home, maybe we'll switch to, you, you have to pay me 200 bucks a month if you want to connect to the grid, and then I'll I'll sell you the, the generation at cost or something like that. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways they can, they can, you know, kind of game the system. And then... Um, I don't know how that's going to pan out because that's going to be a really wild experiment that's never been done before where people are going to be like, OK, well, um, I think most people will just pay that for a long time. But you can imagine a future, you know, in 2040 or 2050s where the technology is improved. Somebody can just say, OK, I can build twice as much solar I want on my rooftop um, and have a really large battery that can charge for a week, two weeks, something like that. And then I can just leave the grid and it will be economical for me to do so because the costs have decreased so much by then um but so like that's the 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 where the way i think this is really going to become a battle is because like they really do have a lot of pull if you really value reliability and none of us really cares that much about like power or thinks about the reliability it's like oh you have a power outage that stinks you just you don't even think about it that much but if you are in this situation where you've got like just enough like solar to power your house and not a whole lot of buffer. And like you need to be managing your air conditioning and like thinking about it, like people are just not going to leave the grid in that scenario. There needs to be a significant buffer, and they need to to be able to do so in a in a cost effective manner. And I think that's going to take some time to to play out.
0: What do you think, James? Any any thoughts?
2: I yeah, the it's gonna. I agree that um, it, the world is going to get really interesting in this space. Um. I like my my thoughts had been more or less along the same lines as as Matt's had been. And the, I'm I was curious about whether people inside the industry like had a sense of what they expected to un- because my ex- my expectation is that, you know, in Southern California. Now we've seen this thing like Florida for a long time. You couldn't install solar, even though it's a great state for solar. Right. Because the utilities, they basically had all these rules like uh, Matt was talking about with Nevada. It's a great place to have solar, uh, but you couldn't get a permit to put it on your house. And that, that has kind of changed. California was pretty forward-looking, but now they've changed it. So that, um, like the economics of putting solar on your house are really different now than they were before. And the difference is whether you have batteries or not. Like if you have batteries, the economics haven't really changed. If you don't have batteries, they have. And in fact, in the previous round, when they tried to push these rules through, one of the you know stalking horse arguments that they had was, well, we're trying to encourage people to buy batteries to get along you know to uh, as a as a way of suggesting this is actually a green change is we're not actually trying to just stop people from getting solar um, if you you know they've if it it is the case that you really want to have a grid connection uh, like even if your grid connection is really small compared to what most people have if you have that and you have some batteries and you have some solar and if the batteries in this future we're talking about it's like I've got $30,000 of power walls in my garage, right? And it's enough to keep my house going for like, I don't know, a week or something most of the time, unless the air conditioner is really hot or something like that. And I've got enough solar on my house to meet the average needs. So like to a first approximation, I can disconnect from the grid. And I actually, I did this thing where the first couple of years I got it, I wrote a bunch of software to manage the house and everything, because I was just curious, like if you could get away with it. What I discovered is there's like two weeks a year that I can't do it, right? There's two weeks a year that like timing when my car charges and, you know, running the water heater at the best time of day and that kind of stuff doesn't doesn't cover the gap. Right. So like if you had a smart enough house, you know, you could you can put a few kilowatts of solar on your house. You can get a couple power walls and you and you can get like ninety five percent of the way to getting off the grid. And it's pretty cheap. But that last five percent is really freaking expensive <laughs> because like it it the last five percent causes your hardware cost to like triple or something like that in order to get there.
1: It's a lot like f s d where it's like you can get like really close there and but then like you get to that, that one more nine and it's like, okay, well, yeah, your hardware costs triple like you said, and then it's like you need to worry about um, like, well, what if there's this situation right now in Michigan where I am, we've got like massive um, smoke for like several days in a row from these uh, Canadian wildfires. Like that's really hurting the the solar radiance that your panels can get. And so if you've got that situation and then there's just, there is like annual uh, differences as well that I think a lot of people don't realize that it's not like uh, super predictable, uh, especially on the wind side, less so on the solar, but there is annual variance as well. So it's like, if you've got, a bad year and a year where like, it's also hot. So you need to run your air conditioner more. And you've got like some weird freak event where it's like more cloudy than usual, or there's like a, you know, Canadian wildfire that, that's hurting your radius. Or like
2: often right now. Let's say, my, so my, my mom has solar and power walls in her house. And, you know, my mom being in her eighties, like I manage it from my phone for her. Um, and so like every day I'm looking at what's happening at her house and they've had like, two weeks of, you know, 105 degrees every day and cloudy, <laughs> you know, it's like raining. The, the the humidity is 85% and it's 105 degrees outside, right? So it's like this, you know, terrible situation where your solar gets cut down and your power consumption goes way up. And, th- you know, those things just happen. So having a grid, having a transmission line, you know, it it closes that gap potentially really inexpensively. But you could imagine, because these people are monopolies, they're just like, Wanna connect to the grid? That'll be a thousand dollars a year, <laughs> right? Or whatever. Like they can just raise the rate to whatever they need to, because it's still cheaper than tripling your hardware costs today. But you know, but you know, the the solar panels and the batteries keep getting cheaper it, it, the thing that i said you know with the batteries get 20x cheaper so so my 30k of, of power walls is now 700 dollars, and you know and the solar system that goes on on the roof instead of being you know ten thousand dollars to put in now it's you know two thousand dollars so now you got a three thousand dollar system that covers your house 95 percent of the time um utilities are going to have this interesting
0: but sorry, but to your point, wouldn't it just cost 4500 to cover it 100% of the time
2: in that future scenario? Well, the thing is that gets you from 95 to
0: 99. <laughs> right? Okay. So it's like 100% have, is it's, impossible. It's
2: that it's that march of nines things, right? Yeah. Where it, I mean, in any given year you might not have a problem and in any given year you might cuz sometimes you just get 3 weeks of like constant rain even though it's unusual for your neighborhood, right? So the thing is There's definitely utility in having that connection, even if you almost never use it. So so the thing is, for a really long time, and and another thing which is true, you know, our neighborhoods, they weren't built with the idea that that solar was going to be a big thing. I live in a neighborhood where most people can't put solar on the roof because we got all these really tall, really old trees that people like, and people aren't going to cut all the trees down so that they can put solar on their house, right? And people who live in apartment buildings, well, they don't have a roof. Right. They're going to be people who need to connect to the grid. And so how does how does the grid uh, I mean, the utilities, they're not going to be happy about this idea of like, you know, they raise the rate. They keep raising rates up. They shift from charging for for generation to charging for transmission and distribution. And they create this environment where everybody who has a sunny roof their economic incentive is to jump is to jump off the grid because that you don't have to do very much of that before it starts destroying the economics for the for the grid, right? Yeah, and it's this a, was it's, this it's
1: called the utility death spiral. Actually, it's a concept that they've been aware of for a long time, and it hasn't happened yet. So it was like, "Oh, we're, we seem to be fine, so we like don't need to worry about it." Well, they
2: like- they they don't want to go there clearly, but then you know. If they want to try to maintain their the revenue rates that they have right now, they're going to get pushed there because the generation costs are coming down. The transmission costs, they're not going to go up. These people are just full of it. They're, I mean, they're making a lot of noise about how adding all of these loads and whatnot. It does add some complexity to the system. I don't want to say there are no changes necessary. And it does require changes. But the most expensive assets they have are the power lines on the poles, right? And the 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 the, the duty cycle of the power lines on the poles is just going to go down, right? I, those, those assets, but they, they do become more valuable, but they get less utilized. So, it's, so the most expensive assets they have aren't going to need to expand in order to serve this, this new system. So they're going to have to come up with some interesting arguments for why they need to keep raising rates in an environment where they're delivering a lot less service.
1: So, so you, you asked for areas we might disagree, and I think that that's maybe one where I could at least see uh, a significant need for for new like generation and or for new transmission and distribution, um, especially in the, the kind of short to medium term. Um, so, like we we are nowhere near this this kind of you know future of you know five x solar abundance uh, relative to our annual uh, consumption. Um, I, I don't know the exact number, but solar and, and wind combined, I think are somewhere less than 20% of, of total generation uh, in the United States. So like, even just to get to the point where we're replacing you know, 1X, our, our existing need, that's going to take more than a decade, You know, probably 20, 40 and beyond, I, w- I would think, before we get there. Um, you might have a better guess with your rights law stuff that, that you've been doing, but you know, at least it's not going to happen in the next five, 10 years. Um, and so if you you've got this situation, in that case, where you're you're building out the solar just the way we've been talking about, you're building out your batteries, but you're you're adding only, for almost exclusively intermittent resources that are more volatile, less reliable, um, and you're you have this transmission system which, frankly, you haven't really upgraded in a meaningful way since like roughly the the seventies was when there was a big build out when all the new nuclear plants were being built. Um, since then, it's been a lot of kind of maintenance, but not a whole lot of expansion. And if you have um, this, this situation. I mean, Texas is a perfect example of this, where you've got a huge amount of generation in the panhandle, but all the load centers are like hundreds of miles away in the big cities. You, you have to have transmission to get there. Otherwise, you're going to just have like wildly high uh, prices in the cities and then like just massively negative prices in areas where nobody's using it, but there's all this generation. So I think in this interim period, there is a need, or at least uh, people people should be willing to pay a premium to build out some some uh, transmission distribution infrastructure um, to kind of cover this you know interim period that we're in. My concern is that that's all going to be a stranded asset like way quicker than people think. So pe- looking at these, uh, one of the, the um, big concerns I have about this space in general, and, and one of the, my main reasons for wanting to leave the in- in- industry, is that. People are making these projections, like 30 year, 40 year, 50 year long lived assets, and they've got these, you know, models and like um, just a, a very quick side note, like I was looking at, at uh, wind plants and like, you know, we're trying to figure out which, which ones made the most sense. I was not on the utility side. I was on the non-regulated merchant side of the, of the business. Um, but, you know, everybody in the company was a utility person. And so like i was doing a net present value to look at the cash flows and like what's what is the price of electricity going to be in 2035 when our power purchase agreement runs out and you've got like you know less secure pricing like you got to make sure that your your you know decision makes sense um like they were just saying oh like assume prices will you know go up five percent a year i'm like that is a wild like assumption you should not do that and then when like they finally went to present to management team they just took that off completely and they they, they showed return on equity which is like like the the net income over your equity in a five year period. It's like it's like an annual snapshot for the first five years is what they cared about. They didn't care at all about the like the next twenty five years after, which is like mind blowing to me. So my, my sense, James, you, you were asking this question earlier of like what do people in the space think? M- my impression from all the time I was working there and a lot of the interactions I have with with people on Twitter now that are still in the space most people don't really see it panning out the way that you and i do um i i think they they really don't see the storm that's coming uh in my sense of like all these decision makers that are you know like gonna invest in these transmission lines that most people in the industry agree that they need and, and i can you know kind of agree with them a little bit they'll build all this out and then i think in 2035 they're gonna say oh crap like we can't afford this anymore like all of our load is leaving and they're you're gonna have like all this stranded infrastructure everywhere that's like not going to be economic anymore that's that and so i think there's gonna be like a rash of bankruptcies in this industry which used to be thought of as like super safe like the beta on these on these stocks is like 0.5 it's like people recommend it for retirees because it's like a consistent dividend yield that is like that scares the hell out of me because it's like it's a ticking time bomb in my mind but nobody seems to recognize
0: it not financial advice
1: not not financial advice for sure, but it's even if it was, it's like you can't invest in that now. It's like a fifteen-year thesis. Like I mean, because
2: regulators can just let them raise prices to cover it, right? For the yeah. utilities that are, that are servicing, you know, the end customer. Do you? Yeah, so pretty- I like one of my concerns is that is that the industry gets itself in a bad place with lots and lots of stranded assets, and we go through this period of time where they make short-sighted decisions. Regulators do to just let them like for instance, you know, the coal plant. Oh, we built that coal plant, turns out we can't use it, but we're gonna charge the customers for it anyway. Right. And oh, we built this transmission line, turns out we can't use it, but we're gonna charge the customers. Like you, you, you do three, four, five of those bad decisions and they just keep driving up rates and customers will pay it. If you find, if you can find a rate structure, you know, that isn't stepping on the wrong toes. Right. You can extract an awful lot of money from the end customers. And so to me, that's that's the scenario where power doesn't actually get cheaper, say, 10 years from now. Right. Like power should be much, much cheaper 10 years from now. If you look at if you look at at the need, the need and what it will cost to service that need. If you just look at those costs, you know, in a sort of competitive market sort of environment, like what it should cost. It should be a lot less expensive 10 years from now. Is it going to be a lot less expensive? Well, if you have a lot of people in the industry making short-sighted decisions that aren't going to work out very well, and you have a bunch of regulators that aren't willing to let the utilities go bankrupt, so they let them just keep raising rates, and you've got customers who will pay the rates because you live in an apartment, you want electricity, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's not it's not just the, the regulators either. I mean, there's there's a there are so many different stakeholders that. that um impact these decisions. I mean, a big one of them is, is landowners. I mean, that's especially prevalent in, in wind and solar, but also in transmission. And, you know, the, the it is a huge pull to go and, and actually do the development to like, say, hey, like, let's put this transmission line, you know, running through your property, we'll pay you, you know, everything like that. But still, there's there's this, this huge trend of nimbyism where people want solar and wind, But when you actually go up to like the city council and say, hey, like, listen, you know, we want to put this in your neighborhood and we're going to, you know, pay you, you know, X amount of dollars per year and it'll be great for, you know, your community. I don't want to look at those things. And like, aren't, aren't they like, there's like all sorts of conspiracy theories. I think Trump had one of my favorites where he said like the turning of the rotors caused cancer or something like that. It's just like. Like, but like all this, you get like literally people in tinfoil hats coming to these community meetings. And so like there is, it's not only like the bloat of the, of the utilities, it's, it's like citing all this stuff going from like, you build one huge power plant, uh, to serve like a, a a big region going from that system to, Hey, everybody, we're going to just, it's like the wild west, everybody builds stuff everywhere and like, try to make it all work. Like there's that's kind of a suboptimal like you'd almost wish you had some super intelligent ai that would say okay james we looked at your model and like we agreed this is the most economic way to to build it out but we've gone a step further and said very specifically to each location here's the asset that you should put in this one particular spot and like somehow overcome all like the local ops like um objections that, that will come up from that like that's the really hard part about this so you can have incompetent regulators you can have regulatory capture you can have just like lazy like like backward looking utilities. And you can have uh, people like landowners who just don't want it in their backyard. And then developers who are just like all over the place trying to get whatever will, you know, give them the best economics. And so it is kind of like this Wild West scenario where there's very reasonable scenarios that could pan out where you get 10 years from now, a grid that is more expensive and less reliable. It's like the the anti-Goldilocks scenario. I think that won't last like that. If that does happen, that that's just going to be like a temporary stopping point on the way to like abundant and, and like free electricity. But I think it's a very real risk that, that we could see pan out.
0: So what's, what's the likelihood that the dynamic at play here is analogous to what's going on right now with the car dealership lobby in certain states and electric vehicles where it's just going to require a player to come in and be like well i'm just not, i'm just not going to play by your rules i'm going to figure out how to how to you know be my own utility and be my own grid so like how how likely is it that will just see a player come in if if this scenario is likely that just bypasses it and it might, it might delay the process of getting there but at least we'll have situations where the optimal way of running the system appears but it appears in pockets and then it will take multiple years or decades for that to propagate. What's the likelihood of that scenario or is that even a realistic scenario for someone to just come in with a hammer and be like well I don't care how you're doing it this is how we're going to do it and will regulators allow that and will governments allow that? Like I would love to know if that's even a possibility.
2: There is a lot of variation. And I mean, it, the, it, the way, the way that different states and communities, the rules that they make, what they think is acceptable, what they're willing to pay. Like that really varies a lot. And I, I, my sense of the, especially for retail users, but commercial users also is that, um, you see all different kinds of experiments. Going on in different places, like uh, Tesla's got VPPs in some places that they're they're those are explicitly experiments, and you see utilities Virtual power plants,
0: right? VPPs, yeah.
2: The, the it's like where you get a bunch of power walls and they act like a power plant, right? And they they are they do power arbitrage where they they buy it when it's cheap and they put it back on the grid when it's more expensive and they make some return on the thing. And Tesla does that to sell a service to a utility that has value for utility, like when they're in a pinch. Last year, uh, California had a run of like really, really hot days where the grid got really close to the edge. I had signed up for Tesla's VPP here. And so like every day, my power walls would charge all the way to max and then they would discharge for a couple of hours in the afternoon into the grid because the grid was having an emergency and among many other things that happened it helped california have to do avoid having to do any blackouts the the iso so they provide you know and i got paid like 2 bucks a kilowatt hour for the power that i gave out because it was this emergency which service which
1: is crazy high by the way like that's yeah. that's an insane rate well, but it's a great deal I, for you We pay right 50 now.
2: cents here you <laughs> know retail <laughs> so our rates are, can be pretty high also but um, yeah so so that's a vpp now this is right now i think the vpp here where i am in southern california uh tesla had i don't know 10,000 power walls on the vpp or something like that so it's tiny um but you know if there were a million of them or something it starts to make a big difference and then that becomes a, a kind of a, another kind of uh way that customers and utilities can interact to um you know, sell service back and forth between the two of them in order to, you know, meet each other's needs. Because you, just like we were talking about how, you know, uh, for if you're a retail user, you know, you have, there's like having your uh, solar and power walls cover 99% of your power. And then there's 99.9 and there's 99.99. Well, utilities have the same problem, right? They get, they have that long march of nines and they want to have you know, these emergency things that they can fall back to when the crazy thing happens and two power plants go down or like, you know, in Austin, they had this freak, uh, uh, uh freeze, uh, two years ago. Oh yeah. You were there. My mom was there. That's why my mom's got power walls now, by the way, <laughs> because she had to, she had, she had five days with no power and no water, right. As a result of utility failures, essentially, like they didn't, Budget for there for one of those nines, and it came rolling through, and and you know hundreds of people died right in Austin during that event. So
1: yeah, and so as far as do US, like, can somebody come in and, and basically like just push the industry forward? Honestly, I don't I don't think anybody is better suited to do that than Tesla, because um, what we're talking about, at least mostly on the, on the residential front, let's keep it there for now, is um, like how do you kind of take advantage of the fact that. You know, James has thirty thousand dollars worth of power walls in his in his garage that can be useful to the grid. If you're in a scenario where they don't happen to offer a program to, for the grid to take advantage of that, and there are huge swaths of the country where they, there isn't a pilot program to to, to do that, um, and so one way around that is to essentially create like a, a, a VPP, but where you go with like you operate as like a, a wholesale power marketer, essentially. Uh, and so this is uh, kind of a more complicated way that, of doing it that, than just by using the the kind of um, utility pilot programs that, that Tesla's relied on, on to date. Although I think they are doing some innovative stuff in Texas uh, along this front. Um, but essentially, if you just aggregate a huge amount of those power walls and you can prove to the, to whoever the grid operator is that you can, you, um, you know, meet whatever criteria they have to qualify for uh, frequency uh, regulation or um uh, capacity, payments, whatever, um, you can actually start generating some income and and share that with your customers who, who would opt into the program. Um, this is this is the topic that I, I really went in depth on when I had that YouTube channel a couple of years ago, uh, Spark Spread. Um, but I think it's something they really still should do. The, the trouble with it is, like, not only do you have to have those assets everywhere, but you also have to, um, like, be really uh, in bed with the regulators, not in, like, a bad way, but, like, you can't just like, like there, there is a lot of work that goes into qualifying for these programs and showing that your, uh, your VPP actually makes sense. And, and there's like, there's just a whole lot of like paperwork and it moves slow. Um, so I've actually suggested in the past um, that Tesla should either acquire or work closely with a company like NLX. Uh, and what they do is like, they specialize in doing VPPs mostly for like large uh, customers. So uh, when I was operating a wind plant, they said, Hey, you can actually pair your plant with nearby solar plants and you know that just due to the complementarity of wind and solar you can qualify for a higher capacity payment than if each one of you just you know bundled in separately it's like oh that makes a whole lot of sense but like those people are like on the phone with regulators they understand these like super niche programs in depth and the fact that you've got these really weird programs like that and different payment mechanisms spread all throughout the country different isos and all throughout the world it's like you you really i I don't think it makes sense for tesla to in-house like expertise of all these weird different like rules and regulations uh, so that's something that i think could be an interesting opportunity i mean they're, they're really going to scale up their their distributed hardware deployments over time um, but they are not utilizing them i think as, as well as they possibly could in areas of than maybe california and texas and there are a couple other like projects like in in uk i know has a system too Okay.
0: What about what about the Australian? So can you put that like within context of what is happening in Australia today with Tesla? Is there any similarity there?
1: Yeah. So um, you talk about the Hornsdale project, I, I presume. I do. Yeah, so uh, that's VPP that's there like,
2: also, or maybe he was talking about that.
1: Yeah. You talk about the the VPP or like the the big battery that they did in the big battery. 2020. like the giant one. Yeah, the, the giant one. So the, that was the one that. Um, Elon, I think, got famous for and was it 2020 or something like that? He said, "Oh, we, you know, we'll have it like up and running in 90 days or something, or it's free, um, and it had like a like nine month payback or something, absolutely insane." And I remember it at the time was like, "Oh my gosh, like batteries are going to be like huge, like this is like the economics are just a slam dunk," and I was like alone in the ether saying, "Like no, like that's like a one off project that's like, that does not scale," um, and, and the, the reason is the the far and away the biggest issue they had with that part of the grid. Uh, is uh, the the frequency would would get out of out of whack. So you know the grid needs to operate at exactly fifty hertz in that part of the, the Australian grid, and um, I, I don't know the exact reasons, but it would frequently get to like forty five or fifty five hertz, and that will severely damage equipment and, and lead to blackouts. It's just like you can't have a grid that's that unstable on the frequency. Um, so I, I looked at the math somewhere, and it was some, something like. of the Hornsdale power plant economics are related to this, what they call frequency control ancillary services payment, FCAS. Um, And so like this, you know, nine month payback is all on the back of this frequency control payment that they got. If you look at the market for frequency control in the United States or pretty much anywhere else, it's like either doesn't exist because it's so trivially small, or it's like a few pennies, (laughs) <laughs> it's like rounding errors. Like if you're doing the, the the math of like how to put a, uh, a whether putting a battery in a certain spot makes sense, you would just ignore frequency control because it's a rounding error compared to, you know, everything else. So um, my, my, years long caution to people has been, don't look at that as an example. It was a great thing, really served a need there, but it's not at all scalable, at least in terms of the economics of that particular
2: project. It is worth noting that frequency control was not part of the economic argument originally for building it. And it was a surprise to everybody that they ended up making so much money on frequency control from that. Like they, the, the developer ended up getting the payback like four times faster than they were expecting to, but the project the hornsdale project with even if you leave out the frequency services it still made sense it's just the payback would have been a more normal like you know five ten years yeah
1: more more normal yeah 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 Yeah. so that's a good point and they've they've since expanded it i believe so it's not like batteries don't make sense like they, they very much do um but you know it's just I, I caution people to avoid expecting like nine month paybacks on these things
2: to the point where you know uh, where Tesla's uh, next two years of production is all sold out right and every 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 month when a new month goes online it sells out in one day
1: yeah it's just it's been this this rolling average and they the one of the things that really surprised me when I went back to look at this is like they have this problem despite um building a huge amount of new capacity. I mean, Lathrop's capacity relative to what they were doing in Giga Nevada for stationary storage is like huge increase. It's like several <laughs> orders of magnitude. Um, and they raised their price pretty significantly. It was like $350 per kilowatt hour back in 2020, I think, when they uh, first introduced Megapack. And they've raised the price to roughly $500 per kilowatt hour. So, the-
2: <laughs> so there's an interesting uh, sort of thing behind that too, because if you look at the value, I mean, the reason that the backlog is so extreme is because the value to a utility of this system is so large compared to the cost of the system right now. So, but the thing is, that was even more true a few years ago than it is now. Like, you know, as as you cherry pick the best places to put batteries, you know, the average return you're going to get on a project is gradually going to work its way down. Just like how Hornsdale was an outlier in terms of its payoff. Well, everybody who, who can do, you know, that $9,000 a megawatt hour, you know, opportunity, like those are going away really quickly. So, The value to the to the grid, in a sense, as you get rid of these cherry picked super high value scenarios, as they go away, the average value to the grid of each battery goes down. Which is not to say it's small; it's just coming. It's not ridiculously high anymore. It's just high, and yet Tesla didn't raise prices for a really long time. So like my theory about why they weren't charging anywhere near what the market would bear was that they didn't want to create the perception that batteries were expensive, right? That they were trying to drive this perce- like they wanted to make a decent return, but they were trying to set a price expectation that would get customers lined up so that they could justify building capacity. Whereas if you try to charge what close to what the market will bear you don't get good visibility into how deep the demand curve is, you know, because people don't develop the projects because they don't assume that it'll work on a lower, you know, ROI kind of, uh, of application. What do you think?
1: So, yeah, I, I would push back on that a little bit, actually. Um, so when, when I was doing the maths um, at this, this company that I used to be at in, in 2020, we're like, all right, we know we need to do a battery system. So my job was to like, look at every single one of our locations and see, okay, where would, where would the battery pencil the best in terms of of the economics? So I looked at, you know, uh, five minute pricing data for every single power plant that we had for the course of, I think I just did a one year period. Um, And our best site at that time had an IRR of like to five percent i want to say which is lower than your cost of capital so the finance nerd in me would say okay you shouldn't do that project like the, the math just is not good enough uh which was surprising um to me so so um in from many conversations i had with other people at the same time there were similar dynamics going on with a lot of people they're like all right we need to like pilot a program using a battery so we can get the technical chops and then as over time as prices come down you know maybe it'll make more sense to, to expand that um when I left the industry, that was kind of where my thoughts on, on energy were or on, on batteries were. So if
2: So we're I'm curious about the constraints on that. Like so you were just trying to site batteries at power plants. Were these all wind plants or were there other kinds of things?
1: No, so it was um, you know, we had a combined cycle natural gas plant, coal plant, uh two different wind sites, a couple of geothermal sites, uh, and a coal plant, uh and a solar plant too. Um and then we did look at like doing some stuff behind the meter with, with some customers that we work with too. And that was just a little too complicated, I think. So we didn't end up doing the math there. Um, but yeah, so that was, um, we looked at a, a lot of different sites. Um, but so, so, you know, that my, my perception anyways was like, okay, that was when the pricing on batteries was even lower. You know, now it's, you know, gone up like 20% or so, so since the time that I was looking at it. Um, so my, my thinking has changed and, and I don't have access to all the data that I used to, so I can't completely support this. But um, it, it does kind of make sense to me that it's in the intervening three years, you've had a huge increase in solar and renewables on top of um, you know, some retirements of coal. So so sure, you, you've cherry picked the best kind of battery sites, but at the same time, the volatility of pricing on the existing grid uh, has, has probably increased just due to the generation mix shifting. So I think that's, that's a bit of the dynamic. Um, that, that is probably making the, uh, the economics look a little bit better. Uh, and then on top of that, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, we haven't really gotten into that yet, but there is a massive subsidy to that, uh, as well as increased flexibility. Uh, so it used to be that you had to like, physically prove, if I'm going to plate this battery at my wind plant, I had to like, get engineering studies to prove that the battery was only going to be charged with uh, wind even if it might have made more sense for the whole grid to have the flexibility to charge from the grid sometimes and from the from the wind sometimes so they got rid of that kind of arbitrary constraint so now that opens up a whole lot more flexibility in the way that you can operate it uh in addition to more much more significant um uh, subsidies direct subsidies in, ter- in terms of the ITC
0: and so what when sort of circling back to what James's sort of original uh, when we're thinking about his introduction, talking about you know energy is something that he's very much interested in. And he's had a, a background in investing. It's, it's, it's a fun thing that he does. And it looks like energy m- may or may not have opportunities there, but it's something that James is very interested in. That Inflation Reduction Act piece that you just brought up is an additional layer that should accelerate the adoption or accelerate the momentum that we've just outlined towards this renewable future right so so what are what are what are those opportunities like what are those opportunities uh if if you were to sort of maybe not give financial advice to James, but like, does is Tesla the primary player here that's going to take the biggest advantage out of all these things we talked about? Are there other players that are uh, in that equation that would benefit as well? Maybe uh, paint a picture for us, Matt, and then James, if you have any thoughts. Yeah. So uh,
1: the, the tricky thing with, with Tesla, if you want to invest in this thesis is like, they're not at all a pure play. <laughs> like Tesla's stock price is, is going to be driven by auto sales and, you know, their improvements on FSD for, uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, Tesla bought in thereafter. I think, you know, Megapack arguably is going to start becoming more meaningfully. And I do think that's going to create some value that will accrue to the stock price. But um, like if you want to invest in the theme, uh, Tesla is just not a pure play. Um, you know, there, there are like if you really believe this thesis in that, that there's going to be a massive build out in, in uh, solar and batteries, uh, there are a lot of places. There's a lot of startup battery manufacturers out there. Um, like Fire Energy is one. I've seen a lot of people on, on Twitter talk about EOS Energy. Um, you know, the, the tricky thing with a lot of these players is that like they're new, the whole industry is new. So like it's a lot of them are, are uh, speculative in that, you know, they're not profitable. They're, a lot of them are trying to get pilot plants up and running uh, on the battery side. Uh, on the solar side, there is a little bit more of a, of a mature industry. Um, like First Solar is, is one of the, the major benefactor, uh, benefactors of the Inflation Reduction Act, as they uh, make a lot of uh, solar plants here or solar panels here in the United States, there's also you know inverters that, that get credits. One of the uh, really well thought out things about the IRA was that it wasn't just like, hey, you if you put a project in place, you get a 30% tax credit. They went much more deep to incentivize the whole supply chain. So like there's there's significant incentives for inverters, uh, a lot of other components that, that go into these got direct subsidies too. So you're, you're, you're kind of trying to build out the whole sub, a supply chain, uh, for this, this new industry essentially in, in real time. So, um, to be honest with you, I haven't found a lot of companies that I love as a pure, pure play in this space. I know there's going to be some winners, but like, especially in, in the battery space, um, I, I have been invested in, in a couple of them. Um, but I, you know, I actually don't think I am invested in any right now. Uh, it's just, it's like, it's almost like a VC, you know. You you you've got to bet. Not only is their technology good, but is the management team good? Can they ramp this up? Is their product gonna like four years from now prove to like have fires and all of a sudden it's like you know they they can't weather that storm. So there's there's I have no doubt that there's huge opportunity here, but it's in my mind a little hard to pick a winner right now in this space. But James, i would be curious, yeah, if you have any thoughts or if you if you looked at any actual investments in the space
2: uh outside of tesla i really haven't i've i've been interested in, well so i'm more interested in understanding how the grid's going to evolve big picture than i am in looking at individual players like for me this isn't really an investing space so i haven't looked at it from that angle it might I, the core thesis, the core argument for batteries being good is that solar is wonderful And it's going to undersell everything else and its weakness is it's intermittent and batteries end up being at scale the the most sort of general way of solving that problem actually one of the reasons i asked about the power plant thing for the battery studies is that when i look at grid maps it seems to me the best place to put batteries is not to put really big batteries in central locations like where generators are but to put smaller batteries at substations Because it solves these, I mean, it solves, it it moves the storage closer to your customer for one thing, right? So if you look at what power costs at different points in the grid, you're putting the batteries in the places where you get the biggest variations, right? So, uh, you know, so to the extent that there are better and worse places from pure market pricing variant standpoint, substations are better choices than power plants are with the exception of solar power plants. because. Of course, solar power plants, they have dr- in, insane variation, like right at the power plant. And then the other thing is that, um, like, land is less of a problem because you already own the land, right? You already have these substations. The power connections, they're not a problem. Substations are power connections, right? So you've, so like, you have a place to put the battery, you have your most of your grid and stuff is already in place. And by doing, you know, batteries don't care. I mean, you can put a battery in a car. You can put a battery in a phone. You can scale them really small. You can scale them really big if you want. They're totally granular. There are some cost advantages to going big, but not a lot. Like once you get to the scale of a single mega pack, basically two, three, four, they're just gonna scale linearly with price. You're not, I mean, you'll get reductions in cost for installation, stuff like that. But the equipment itself, it doesn't really change in price when you do that kind of stuff. So putting a single mega pack at a substation and having lots of substations and lots of megapacks and distributing it that way and then coordinating them with something smart auto bitter right um uh gives you kind of what seems to me like the way to get a lot of storage into the still there matt yeah because batteries scale so well putting putting you know smaller like single container single megapack pack uh, xl uh, batteries at substations It seems to me like a more natural fit. Like not only do you get the better pricing, but you get simple installation. It seems like, you know, the permitting and regulation and land acquisition and all that kind of stuff just gets much easier when you do that. And you get distributed backup, right? So now you can cut the grid in a lot more places and the remaining parts can stay up. Plus, you can make better use of your transmission infrastructure like if you have a chunk of transmission line that you know is overused at certain times a day well ahead of time you can ship power across it store it locally and then as that transmission line runs up and hits capacity you serve more and more of the of the demand from the storage you already have on the far end of the transmission line for instance yeah and you can do that in distribution networks too if you put megapacks at substations
1: so I, I agree with you, and I think that there definitely are uh, some companies that are doing this right now. I think the the kind of tricky thing about that it gets back to the beginning of the conversation is who owns all the substations. A hundred percent, it's the it's the regulated utilities. So um, it, it, they still are incentivized to do this. So I don't want to you know completely rag on them. You know if they're wanting to to put some batteries out there, you know, they'll come to the same conclusion that you did that, Hey, we can increase reliability and it'll you know be, be the most cost efficient to put it here. So they'll go and put it there. But, um, there's not, I, I don't think that there's going to be a huge push to, to say like, Hey, we want to like put, you know, a terawatt hour of batteries out there. So like, let's all like figure out which substations make the most sense. And like, you know, all sides, it's going to be like very ad hoc. And a lot of this is just like, what are the utilities feel like doing? Um, yeah, I was. I had a, a Twitter exchange with this guy, Simon Mayhan, earlier today, who who is like really nerds out on like these what are called the integrated resource plans that these utilities put out, which is basically okay. What is our grid going to look like in you know three different in uh, in 10, 15 years? And they'll do different scenarios. We're like, oh, we do more renewables, we do more like solar or whatever. <laughs> and so this one that he was highlighting today was from Entergy, uh, Louisiana utility. And they basically had this conclusion that like this scenario one, I think, was their their preferred scenario. And I don't know all the details on it. Well, then the IRA came and like, so they like, you know, quote unquote, re-ran their math. Well, they had all these like math errors, like A plus B equals C, they didn't update that. <laughs> and they just said like, well, we looked at increasing, we looked at, um, you know, the IRA and just, it's gonna be a little bit more intermittent. So even though it might cost a little bit less, like we're gonna still recommend scenario one, and, and so this this guy who's like really tracks this stuff closely he was like, they did not like rerun in the way that they did for the first pass. Like what would be the most efficient way to like put all of these resources, you know, now that they're subsidized by the IRA out there across our entire system. They just said, you know, we, we looked at it and, you know, we really think you should go with scenario one. And so the regulators are, I'm sure, are just going to be like, yeah, all right, scenario one's approved. And so like that's the way a lot of this stuff goes. is like, yeah, trust me, we, we looked at it. And I've been in meetings with the people who, who look at it. And like, you know, they're going to do what's the best for their, for the company, even if it's not like explicitly like, you know, fraudulent or anything like that. It's just like, there's very um, legal and um, okay ways to like put your thumb on the scale to be like, you know what, this is going to be the way that we don't have to cut any jobs or, you know, like, you know, do things that'll raise questions in a regulatory hearing. Um, So there's, there's just like a lot of those soft things that, that happen that uh, do make me concerned that (laughs) even though your, your way makes the most sense, um, it may not be what happens.
2: You know, uh, one thing about the batteries at substations thing where you were saying, well, the utilities own them, maybe the utilities don't want to do that. But like this battery, wouldn't this count as one of those things that you get to, you know, charge 10 percent a year forever? So there's there's an incentive for you right there, especially if you go to the regulator and you say, hey, you want more reliability. We can buy these batteries in containers and just put them at the substations. We could have it in there in six months. (laughs) Right. Maybe that's why they're back. Maybe that's why they're or also. Or you could build a, sec-
1: <laughs> a second substation and that might cost 10 times more. And so like, that's, that's the kind of level of like, well, like, you know, we, we needed to increase reliability because that, that's our mandate. And so like, here's the way that we found to do it. And maybe, you know, they intuitively knew that you could just put some, some batteries there or that it was at least worth exploring, but if they don't explore it and nobody tells them they have to explore it, then they can maybe just keep doing things the way that they have always done them. And, and they'll cost a lot more. Now, like, I don't want to paint.
2: Do they have any time sensitivity? Because like if you can put the battery in a substation and have it up in, in 30 days versus building another substation, which doesn't come online for three, four years, do you think they have an incentive to do the fasting?
1: I, I, so they don't, I mean, the, these uh, IRPs that they, they pull together are like multi-year things where like they have a proposal and then it goes into the public record and then there's a hearing and then like a whole host of like random Parties come and say like, oh, like you should support this or no, this doesn't like the teachers' union doesn't like this this particular part. So it's like this multi-year hearing, and then like the the PU, the, the public utility commission staff will weigh in and, and give their comments, and it's actually like a judicial process um, where you know the, the it's like a it's like a, a regulatory like judicial uh, hearing with an actual judge that you know where these things get approved, um, and so that like. If you know anything about the judicial system, it, like thirty day turnaround is not necessarily like something that 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 helps to to smooth the way. So, I, I and I would also say I think in most cases you're not going to like get a pack installed in in thirty days. We already talked about the backlog for these things, and um, in non kind of substation scenarios, the, the interconnection alone is going to be a multi year process. My
2: date might have been uh, poorly chosen, but the idea that um, that it's a simpler thing that they can get done more quickly. In- um,
1: well and for sure some some utilities are doing that um and like uh, th- they're not all like these like evil monsters and you know i think like there there's uh very real scenarios where where they're doing that today so like we're going to see more of that it's just a matter of like it's not going to be optimized in the way that you know you and your model would, would have it optimized if you got to be you know king of the world for you know the next 15 years to build out all this infrastructure there's going to be a lot of compromises and suboptimal placement of of assets i think
2: Yeah. You know, the, the internet is from compared to a utility, it's a total wild west and it actually works pretty well.
1: That's an interesting thought.
2: So like, it is possible to do it that way.
0: I was going to mention we're at, we're at two hours. How are you guys feeling?
2: Um, I'm getting kind of fried. My, my voice started out bad and it's been getting worse the whole time.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I'll do, I'll do a little wrap up here. Um, so actually I want to mention this, you know, what you just said, James, that would make a great t-shirt. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Please.
2: There was a thing that came up when Matt, when we were talking that I wanted to mention, uh, we, uh, remember when we were looking at the master, um, uh, Tesla's master plan part three together. And one of the things that we were both confused by was the hydrogen storage.
1: Yeah. 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 Remember
2: that? Okay. So I went and I looked at the hydrogen storage because initially I was thinking, oh, you know, the reason they end up with all the hydrogen storage is because they didn't put learning curves on the other stuff. So they're, so essentially they end up with more hydrogen storage because the batteries aren't getting cheap enough. Right. So, so, so they, so they need this really cheap storage. So I went and I looked at the numbers and the, and the, the paper, the citations that they had to try to understand the hydrogen storage thing. And the, a thing that surprised, well, first, What I was thinking was, oh, they're doing the hydrogen storage because the batteries aren't getting cheap enough because they're not assuming any battery change. And that's why they have all this hydrogen storage. And maybe that was a component of what was going on. But one of the things I found, which I thought you would be interested to hear, is that the hydrogen storage, it actually does look really good. (laughs) It's super early days stuff. But so what they were proposing was essentially storing hydrogen in salt caverns, right? And they cited a paper that looked at different ways of doing hydrogen storage pressure vessels and that kind of stuff that paper decided salt caverns. They're kind of this intermediate size thing. They're not super large. They're not super small. Um, but they're relatively inexpensive from a storage standpoint. Now, one of the weird things in the, in the, in the master, uh, in Tesla's master plan three is they only, they talk on that one line. They just talk about, they don't talk about kilowatt hours of storage. They talk about, you know, kilograms of hydrogen, because that's what the original paper was cited. And it's like this outlier on the table where they do that stuff. Well, it turns out the conversion ratio is like 33 kilowatt hours per kilogram of hydrogen. But of course you have to generate the hydrogen, right? You need an electrolyzer to make it. And then you got a fuel cell to convert back into electricity. And then you got to build a cell cavern. So there's overhead. They decided that the LCOE was $19 per kilogram of hydrogen. And if you compare that to like $200, per kilowatt hour of storage, which was kind of the no, the ballpark of the number that they had for batteries. Well, the 19, $19 for 33 kilowatt hours seems, it's a lot cheaper. You know, it's like $2 a kilowatt hour as opposed to $200 a kilowatt hour. So like there's this huge difference between the two. Um, it does turn out now that they, they don't include, they didn't include the cost of the electrolyzer. There's stuff that doesn't go in there. I think it ends up being higher than 19. Yeah, like it's a weird kind of hole It was very strange. Yeah. They didn't and good,
1: as far as that, I think when I was on your they channel didn't last night, we, we spoke about how there was just like this weird hydrogen yeah, thing that they didn't really explain it. It. or give numbers to. Um,
2: so, but the thing is, even if it's 50 bucks and it, it won't be like, I looked at the electrolyzers and the uh, and the fuel cells, they had a couple dollars per kilogram of hydrogen or whatever. So maybe it goes from 19 to, I don't know, maybe it goes to 30 or something, but that you're still looking at like a dollar a kilowatt hour as opposed to uh, as opposed to a hundred, you know, $200 a kilowatt hour. So it's really, really cheap storage. It's pretty immature. Like there have been demonstration projects done to show that it works. And the electrolyzers are a business that's growing uh, and, you know, bloom energy for instance, makes these things at various scales and uh, and they have a learning curve, which they claim is 28% on those things. So that's great. The fuel cells, you know, they've been around for a really long time. I don't know how well they're doing. They're they're on roughly. I don't know if they're at the same kind of learning curve, but it does actually look like hydrogen makes like if you got some salt caverns laying around, and you you know, and there's a power substation nearby, that might be a fine way to actually get really cheap uh, storage, which would make a lot of sense for like seasonal stuff, right? Because even if you don't have a lot of them, you can, cause you can just, you know, you can run, you can, you can charge it continuously for six months and then discharge it for six Which months. Which is right? essentially
1: what we do with our natural gas infrastructure right now. So it's like, it's, it's kind of proven that the tricky thing with hydrogen is, is that it's, it's the smallest molecule. So like all the challenges are like super amplified because, you know, you need like much more uh, like precision, uh, like valves and everything like that. And the generation technology, as you said, really isn't proven out. Bloom Energy um yeah they've been they've been working on this for like two decades basically and have yet to turn a profit uh there we were actually short them at uh, good soil when i was working there with them for a while because like their business model is just like failed but then like the ira came out of nowhere and it's like actually with these incentives like their their business model might actually make sense it's kind of interesting it's like kind of saved by the by the, the regulation there um but yeah, so I agree with you. Like, there's there's room for things other than lithium ion to be uh, pretty competitive, which is interesting because that's not something that Elon has ever really spoken about. You know, he's he's very anti hydrogen from a EV perspective, but it seems like his team has looked at it and said, "Oh yeah, well, for energy generation and, and seasonal storage, uh, it looks like it actually probably makes sense." So yeah,
2: I suspect it ends up being like pumped hydro, right? Like pumped hydro makes sense too. The problem is the number of sites where it works really well is small compared to, you know, all the places you want. You can't put pumped hydro at a substation, right? You can't put it on a coastline. There's all kinds of places. It just doesn't work. And I think the, you know, the, the, you know, the hydrogen gas probably ends up being like that too. Um, which is to say, in the long run, I think you, it's, the storage still ends up being ninety percent lithium-ion batteries or something like that. Eighty. So that, okay,
1: that, that's interesting then. So that's a point where you disagree with the Tesla master plan because they have what was it like one hundred six terawatt hours of uh, hydrogen storage, and it was was it like eight or twelve or something like that of, of lithium-ion. So like really a, a massive um, increase. And so you're you're saying the opposite essentially that that you think uh, lithium-ion will be you know hundred terawatt hours plus and
2: I haven't gone, okay. so this is, this is a not well considered in the sense that I haven't, maybe there are salt caverns ever, everywhere, and there's tons and tons of capacity to do that. My expectation is that they're geographically undesirable locations for the most part, right, that, that you're going to be doing that kind of stuff. And one of the things in this paper was there's an upper bound to what it makes sense to do. So like, even though the cost continues to scale as you go bigger and bigger, it turns out that for construction reasons, there's a size you don't want to exceed. So you're kind of, you're kind of capped in the economics that you can reasonably achieve. They can't, they can't get arbitrarily better. Also, uh, you know, it remains to be seen if the, um, if the learning curves on the electrolyzers and the fuel cells actually improve as well as they do for like batteries and solar. My guess is they won't which is, like it's a complicated argument, but I'm pretty confident that they're not going to improve nearly as fast as those do, which means the relative merit of those technologies declines from a cost standpoint uh, as you move forward. But the other thing is, is, like they're not, you know, Tesla's model, it doesn't have a big overbuild and it doesn't have a lot of lithium ion batteries in it because their lithium ion battery costs are 20X higher than I think the, the batteries are going to end up being. So the ratio just ends up being- yeah.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So that's that's it's kind of interesting. One area that you and I kind of agree and and by default disagree with Tesla's master plan. There, it's uh, um, but I think your your point was was right though at the beginning that they they did that not as a like blueprint blueprint of exactly how it's going to pan out, but as a way to say, okay, here's a pretty conservative way where you know it it it'll we can go completely carbon neutral and have you know um, lower costs all in. Like I think there are there are some other uh, valid criticisms of that too. Like I I, I think it's going to be hard to get shipping to be economical. Like the ultra large container vessels that are going from like Shanghai to part of Los Angeles. I think it's going to be very hard to kind of make, make make those batteries. Like you can sure envision a way where like it can technically be done, but I think to do that economically is probably not gonna not gonna work. But if we've got like five percent of our you know. Per- current carbon footprint that doesn't transition, like, I feel like we'll still be okay. Like, and and maybe we, we, the technology will continue to advance and you can talk about carbon sequestration actually, uh, potentially panning out. So, um, it's like the, the point is it's a future of abundance and it's lower costs. And and it's, it's like, there's going to be so much change in the next, you know, 10, 20 years. It's just like, it's, it's wild to think about.
0: I love how you encapsulated this entire conversation in those last 20 seconds. I was like thinking of ways. that's like, hey, how can I how can I bring this all together as we wrap this up and talk about, you know, what we've just discussed? But I think that perfectly summarizes it. And, you know, I think I think folks like uh, I don't know how many times have we heard somebody like an Elon Musk for decades or years saying, hey, it's coming, it's coming. And now as we're sort of going down this path with folks like you and James and uh, a bunch of other folks that have been talking about this, uh, it really seems like it's finally happening. Uh, My biggest takeaway from this conversation, and I would love to hear the the audiences as well in the comments, is uh, it's definitely going to, like, it's totally going to happen. It's (laughs) going to happen. The economics are way too strong for it not to happen. Uh, There will be difficulties on the path there, at least if we're talking about the United States and sort of how the utility and the grid is set up. Uh, It's unlikely for it to be a smooth transition. There could be a weird uh, sort of transitional phase where as the reliance on the grid, potentially, or or how the current system is utilized becomes less and less useful. There could be a weird transitional phase where it doesn't seem like it's really economically viable because of different forces. But uh, in the end, as long as we keep riding the cost curve of solar down, and especially the battery cost curve, which is in its infancy related to the solar cost curve, we're going to have an opportunity to really, to truly, truly have a situation where we're going to have Insane amounts of energy at super low costs, which really rewrites the future of humanity in so many different ways. Because everything we do requires energy, and as energy becomes cheaper and more plentiful, then we can do significantly more things as a species. How's that sound?
2: Yeah, good summary. Yeah, it's a, we're not we're not debating whether it's going to be awesome or not. <laughs> we're just debating how awesome it's going to be. Yeah, how and awesome. how soon <laughs> it will be. Echo awesome. chamber,
1: <laughs> but it, yeah, it's, it's also so interesting to think about it. Maybe we're being a little bit redundant, but like thinking of the applications for AI, because like like the training costs of, of compute is, is like such a huge factor. And it's like, okay, well, 10 years from now, if like the, the machinery has gotten so much better and your electricity cost is basically free, like what does that imply for like the things <laughs> that you say, can
2: do? Dojo is where all that extra right. power is going, right?
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. I feel like 100
2: exawatts like is 100 megawatts. That's right? crazy. So if they keep going up that oh, curve,
0: okay, hey, <laughs> that is crazy. I feel like the, 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 If we ever have a follow up conversation on this is like, okay, now now that we think this is gonna happen, what are the possibilities? Like what what are these hypothetical scenarios like we discussed? Like is the desalination of water becomes basically you only need is the equipment. To make it happen and the energy could theoretically be free all of a sudden you have water freaking everywhere and if the transportation of water becomes negligible from an energy perspective because you know the the everything's uh battery powered all these trucks and stuff like maybe you could make oases in places that right now are barren because the cost of transportation and stuff becomes so so freaking cheap it's like that's where my head goes to right Is like all these naturally uh a- these areas that are typically uh, not habitable or just don't make a lot of sense because of the infrastructure you have to build out, all of a sudden it makes sense for people to live there. Now you have freaking Starlink going, so you can get your internet, no problem. And you have your solar and batteries localized. It's it's like all these different opportunities arise that, that you know, who knows 50 years, 100 years from now is, is possible where it wasn't today. And guess, that's like I, a fraction of a percent of what we can do.
2: I guess if you have Optimus and you've got labor covered, then energy is the only other thing you need, right? So now we have both.
1: Yeah, just the, the overlap of all these technologies is what's so nutty because everyone's already talked about like the deflationary potential of Optimus and hey, what does it even mean if if like, you know, you can just like completely undercut and have a huge abundance of, of um, like machine labor that can do everything just as well as you. And then what if you take out like the single highest operating cost on top of that? It's just like, like the, the future is going to be, I'm becoming more and more convinced is really going to be one of abundance and, you know, just like better decision making and um it's 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 gonna be wild the the future for the next generation is just gonna be just crazy to see i don't know how to prepare my kids for it it's uh it's interesting
2: <laughs> well everything will be free everything will so. be free right? as long as they know how to operate a ps so we shouldn't be we investing are. that's what you're
1: saying <laughs> there's no point everything's gonna be free <laughs>
2: It's, I do wonder sometimes if, you know, my investing hobby really in the end does turn out to be a meaningless hobby because money doesn't matter yeah. anymore. If, if
1: everyone's a millionaire and like you can get anything you want, then like only truly scarce things would actually need to be paid for, like I don't know, some like like geographic locations or something like
2: that. Well, if everything costs nothing, then it there you know, there's no upside to being a millionaire. Right? Yeah.
1: What if capitalism inadvertently causes communism? <laughs> everything free and it's just in India. <laughs> that would be ironic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That'd be very ironic. James, you said something earlier in the like not too long ago. You said batteries don't care and that would make that would make a great shirt. I already have like a vision of like just a battery being like, "Eh, <laughs> it's like I don't care where I'm at." It would be a great concept. James, Matt, thank you so much. You guys, if if we want to have a follow-up conversation, uh I, like like I said, I mean, I'd, I'd be more than happy to. I mean, all I've done is just absorb. I've just been a freaking sponge and uh it's I'm just so grateful to have both of you, as as you know, people that I've met, where I can learn so much from, and uh, yeah, such selfless. Like you guys are just willing to sit down and, and and have this conversation, and giving me the ability to sort of you know sit down and just listen, really, and and learn, and uh, allowing others to uh, also listen in and learn from both of you. So seriously, thank you guys so much for your time, uh, pl- two, two hours and 15 minutes or so of just pure nerd out on what's going to happen. And I'm sure the audience is going to, is going to love it and, and finds this incredibly valuable and helpful. Um, any parting words before we, uh, we end this
1: sucker.
2: Have a great weekend. Well,
1: always fun to talk to James and yeah, I guess less so you Farzad, but uh, appreciate you hosting this nonetheless. I but, understand. No, this is, <laughs> I mean, I, I think James and I both just do this. We, we would do this for free, just privately, the two of us. And we frankly have before. So yeah, we, do yeah, yeah. It's, we like doing it. And we, <laughs> we think it's, it's probably going to be beneficial. So yeah, maybe some other time we can, we can have a follow-up, but appreciate the time. And James, great talking to you as always.
2: Yeah, well, it was fun. Thanks for awesome. taking the time to do this.
0: Thank you guys. We'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.